Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 182, brand four in A Storm of Swords, featuring our friend Sweet YFT, and I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, we have a very special third host today, our good, good friend, Anne, who loves Bran. Oh my god. Thank you for coming, Anne. Hello. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me here. I am so excited to be talking to you again. We have not talked in a really long time. It has been quite a while. It's crazy because I feel like the last time all three of us were together was in 2017 in a room, splitting makeup together and trading makeup at Ice and Fire Camp. We, we, were, we saw each other in 2018, was, uh, right? Yeah, no, 2019, I'm pretty sure, right? 2018, 2019? 2019, I think. But it's been a while. And also, like, you know, while we might talk, it's not often, it's not always about a song of ice and fire nowadays, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's other stuff. Anne comes and joins us from the Hype Swatch, which also uh, a clash of queens. I love being part of the Hype Swatch. I, I mean, I know the guys made a recap video for half of House of the Dragons. I miss the Clash of Queens more than anything. I loved working with T-Baby and Tinker, but like, I, don't, I don't think that's coming back. But I love the yeah. format. Well, maybe when we get a book, right? Maybe when we yeah. get a maybe book. Maybe when we get a book. Happen. Please, George, give us another yeah. book. Come on. I, mean, I miss the girls. I want Clash of Queens back. I miss my girls. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to it because any day it's going to get announced, right? We're going to look under our chair and there it's going to be and Clash of Queens will come back and we have all these big plans, right? You're going to you're going to take over the world by storm again and with your uh wonderful brand analysis. I was just listening to the brand 2 mm. A Storm of Swords hype swatch episode from 2016. It took me back in time. It had some great voices. You were leading the discussion. Don Willie was there, Jerry was there. I want to say Scad from Davos Fingers was on and Tinker it was a great discussion, and when I read Bran, I do get a little nostalgia, right? It makes me think of, God, the, the 2015 through 17 era of A Song of Ice and Fire. Thank you. Well, yes, we were so excited back then. We were so excited. <laughs> we were, though. We were. It was fun. I'm still kind of excited. I think the last book that really excited me was the world book, The World of Ice and Fire. I know some people were still very, very, very excited by the Fire and Blood Targaryen book that I, you know, barely got through thanks to the Parabolia book. One, I'm not the biggest Targaryen fan. I, you know, they're a great house, but and also because a lot of it was things we already had in novellas. I mean, we had we had some good things, and I would need to give it another try. I mean, I know we had some good things, and I know you loved it, Chloe. Like, I know you were really excited. I, I know, I know they're your fave, and I know you loved it, and and you got a lot more out of it than I did. But like, the world book was more my thing because you know it touched mm-hmm. a lot more on magical places, and you know, like there were so many like juicy little tidbits for me. Well, 2014, 2015, right? Wasn't that around when it came out? So no, that was another yeah. prime, yeah, prime like moment in a Song of Ice and Fire fan feeling like being able to read that i remember when that came out it was i mean it is beautiful it's a beautiful book but it was such an exciting piece there was a lot of mystery like you kind of said there was a lot of it didn't give everything away and fire and blood's not for everyone but it is for me so i will read it twice as much just for you and just for you 
Yeah, it still has some of that mystery and magic in it, but as Anne said, a lot of it had been pre-released before. Like, for example, a lot of the Conquest was from the world book, and then Sons mm -hmm. of the Dragon had been released previously, or at least uh, read a lot at conventions. Yeah, Sons of the Dragon was released in, a, in another book, as well as uh, The Rogue Prince and The Princess and the Queen. But there's still, I think, a lot in there that's really good, and some of the stuff, like for Alison Jahari's which we'll talk mm -hmm. about a little today, was yes. was not in the world book and I think stands alone really well because it has more of a narrative flow to it than some of the stuff in the world book, some of which like read like, you know, very long encyclopedia entries and I, I prefer having like that more character driven approach. Gotta love the edgy, richer, uh more royal Brady bunch, you know? It's a blast. It's a blast. Well, Anne, we're so excited that you're here. We're gonna get into all this and more today. But first, up top, we want to get through our housekeeping really quickly. So for all of you listening at home, last month for our Patreon special bonus episode, which patrons in the Stranger tier and above, $5 and up, get every month at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon was A Song for Leah by George. And believe it or not, I think we really, really enjoyed this. I, I think I had a really good time reading this novella with you, Eliana. Well, it was sad. It was bittersweet. It was heart conflict itself yeah 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 it was super good it was my first time reading that short story so i i'm really glad that we covered it and i think there are some things that really inspire the way that we're going to approach this discussion today in a song of ice and fire and have you read this story yes actually so a while ago i really really liked it i have not read that many of george's novellas besides the ones in the aswaf canon but yes, I really liked it. I thought it dealt with some interesting themes that we find in A Song of Ice and Fire in a very, with a lot of subtleties. Yeah, painful. You can see how it's the same person still like working through the same things, but he's grown. He's got different ways of doing it now, as opposed to, you know, as I say in that episode, 1970s George was, he was going through it. Something was happening in that man's life. <laughs> It was raw. It was yeah. raw and like a lot of heartache and you could just, you can actually like feel that though. You can feel what he put into it, the love and maybe the heartache he was putting into it. And I really loved it. And I think you're onto something there that he's definitely refined it, right? He's really polished that and been able to integrate that into his story without it being too heavy handed or too heavy. I think it's really well done throughout A Song of Ice and Fire and for what it might be building towards. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, I think the main difference is, and I, that's something I'm excited to touch on in that chapter, but for better or worse, because that's a discussion we're having a lot in the fandom. But one thing that is very specific in the Song of Ice and Fire is his strategic use of the POV. Mm. So, that, so here in Song of for Leah, you know, it's the whole I mind thing. And Yes, we have the POV of our main character, whose, I'm sorry, name I totally forgot because I read that yonks ago. But, like, we are kind of told what the hive mind is, you know, and how people feel about it. We have the hive mind in A Song of Ice and Fire. The thing is that we're going to really experience it, and we're going to, I mean, we might see it through different characters, but mainly we know we're going to see it through Bran, and we're going to see it through a nine-year-old, probably at the time, boy, who's going to have no guidance or very biased guidance yeah. to experience mm -hmm. it. And we're going to 
see through his thoughts. And so it's going to be, you know, we're going to have to parse. It's going to be muddled. And it's we're going to have to decipher things about it. And on first read, what are we going to take out of it on first read and on second read? And once maybe we learn more about it in a, another chapter, maybe Sam is going to say something about it that's going to then illuminate a reread because he read something in a mm-hmm. book. I love that. So that's how we see the evolution. It's like the same idea, the same great thing, but in his previous books, it was given to us. And now when he revisits it, it's layered, it's nuanced. Yeah, there's a lot of that sci-fi as set dressing over the central themes in A Song for Leah, right? You're surrounding it with set dressing. And I think that's a lot of this chapter too, where we have the night fort as a scary set dressing, but deep beneath it is something deeper. And we're going to talk probably a lot about that today. And so excited. I'm actually really excited for this month's Patreon episode, and you'll like it too. We're going to do the mystery night because we're about to get into Blood Raven. We're about to get into a Dawada, a Dance with Dragons. Back to the, the Seven Kingdoms with Dunk and Egg. And I, I haven't reread Mystery Night in a while, so I think it's going to really apply here. It's been a long time. A long time. Long time coming. I'm going to say it again. I think I say it every time I'm invited somewhere. George, if you can't release the next installment of the Song of Ice and Fire, if you cannot give us Winds of Winter, please. I mean, I would... I would die for the next dog and egg. You hear me? <laughs> She's not being dramatic, folks. She means it. <laughs> yeah, I love you. She means it. Uh, she means it. She means it. Yeah, that's a big plea. Please, George, please. Well, that's not the only thing patrons can enjoy this month. We do have another installment ourselves of brunch slash happy hour for our patrons in the Thunder tier and above, $10 and up, who get access, lifetime access to our private Discord channel where people gather to post memes and art and food. Lots of food. There's so much food. We are a food podcast. So this month's will be at February 19th, 1 to 3 p.m. ET, Eliana time. No. Asterisk. (laughs) Asterisk. 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 And yeah, it'll be a fun time. I think we might... We might play some reindeer games or something. It's a little after Valentine's Day. I think we had a Galentine's Day last year, so maybe we'll do it again. Who knows? Who knows? And also, that's not the only thing that happens on our Discord amongst the channels. There's there's lots of fun activities we had, but starting today, uh, and I say today because of right now when we are recording this episode, our lovely patrons are spearheading a rewatch of His Dark Materials, the final season. And that's every Saturday at more or less like unless it changes. Yeah. Every now and then it Mm -hmm. might change, but it's usually at 1 p.m. ET as well. Yeah, they're starting today. So I can't wait to go listen in and hear what fun they have to bring us. And finally, finally, if you missed it in our season update, 2023 season update, this season on Girls Gone Canon, you if you didn't listen to that 14-minute episode, you're probably missing out on what's to come this year. So let's tell you real quickly, we just put out Gossip Girls Gone Canon, my passion project, the only thing I've ever wanted to do with Eliana. And thank you, Eliana. This was very kind to let me have this. You know, you got to give your wife a couple things once in a while, throw her a bone. Is this all you wanted? I feel like you also might want to do Gen 1 at some point, but that is a bigger list. I There's really like want to way do Gen 1. more episodes, but I do. I think we should consider it. People, the, the people are asking for it. The people do want it, but we did <laughs> we cover. We, I'm the people here. 
We did cover Generation 2 series finale and kind of overall thoughts on the now dead Generation 2 Gossip Girl show. Rip, I hope we can bring her back, right? Three days is all we need, right? And some relore. We could come back. But spoilers, our feelings are very complicated, but overall good. And we talk a little bit of the meta of how the show is coming to be and what it would have been in the future. God bless Josh Safran, the United States of Josh Safran, who directed the show. And I mean, he really did a great job. So listen into that episode. It's great. It was fun. I actually really enjoyed it. And finally, finally, another passion project has been brought to life at the end of March, the last week, because if you notice, we do not put out A Song of Ice and Fire on the last week of the month that is reserved for His Dark Materials episodes. Usually we're taking a little break before we jump back into HDM, but we'll be starting a new series. Yeah, in the lead up for the release of the final Sailor Moon reboot movie. Sailor Moon Cosmos, which is coming out worldwide June 30th. In March, we are kicking off Magical Girls Gone Canon, which is mostly only really covering Sailor Moon, but maybe we'll talk about a couple of the other Maho Shoujo series that there are to discuss. But we are starting with Season 1 of Sailor Moon Crystal in March. So again, the reboot series. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled on the feed. I'm really enjoying my rewatch so far. I have a lot of thoughts. The animation's gorgeous. Crystal is really pretty. It's very pretty. There are moments that it is. Yeah, for sure. They, yeah. There are moments that you're like, what is going on here? Yeah, that's the, too, budget, but, the budget. The you budget. Know, the budget. The budget. We know all about that. It's always the budget. Well, we've gotten a bunch of emails and tweets of note. Everyone is kind of getting geared up as we get closer to a Davida. This is the final brand chapter of A Storm of Swords, so we will be back with A Dance with Dragons for our next episode. And uh, I think we have a guest for our episode after that that we will announce next week, so keep your ears peeled. So, we got a comment on Twitter from our friend Sabrina. In case you missed it, previously in an episode, I think we offered to sponsor a Night's Watchman for a certain amount of day on our Patreon. It's not a tier yet, but we could make it that way. For a certain amount of money every day, you could feed a Night's Watchman of your own, and Sabrina has already staked her claim. They want to see us sponsor Dolores Ed. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. Sabrina, we will we will use our very first pledge to save Dolores uh, Ed for you. Yeah, I don't I don't remember making this promise, but yes. No, it was me. It was only oh, okay. me. <laughs> Sabrina also said something interesting. Yeah. Piggybacking off yeah. of last week's episode or last episode, I should say. I think the creaking hinges heard in this chapter connect to Euron, because Bran is going to be taught by the three-eyed crow, and he abuses Hodor for the first time in this chapter. I love that connection. Yeah, I thought it was a really good way to tie together, you know, like, it's not explicitly, right, like, that it's about Euron in Bran's story in that way, but, like, the sort of parallels of, like, what power means and take using your power over someone else's body which is uh something that gets confirmed in the forsaken in regards to euron and aaron's storyline but yeah i thought that was a really really great way to parallel them it's an interesting chicken and the egg question we know euron's a monster but did the three eyed crow turn euron into a monster because i mean he big ran young so he could we know euron has been a monster in childhood but he could have picked euron really young or does the three-eyed crow 
big monster children. Um, I think what I'm what I'm kind of wondering lately is is it like people who go through like a near death experience? But I think that I'm just influenced by the show The OA, which was also canceled, and I will never get back. But it's a good question regarding was Euron always like this, or did power turn him that way? Because I do think that's something that George uh, is exploring, right? Like the nature versus nurture thing and i think you know one storyline where that's really obvious is is Tyrion's storyline yeah that's a great point i don't know it's hard i take it as i take it as canon <laughs> unfortunately and that that comes from the gap of having a book right but i really do take it as canon the euron and blood raven jedi failed jedi trainee kind of thing it's like because kung fu panda it is kind of like kung fu panda usually i would argue but actually <laughs> actually yeah there's that line, right? The Euron standing nude at the window looking out on the sea, and he says, when I was a boy, I dreamt that I could fly. And he says, the maester said it wasn't true, but what if he lied? How can we know if we never leap? So it feels, it feels like it. It feels right. And this is actually a really great little connection to draw, but it comes back to it. I think, especially when you see like all the bones of the dreamers that couldn't continue on there in the visions, and you see like the bones of the green seers, um, it takes it from being this magical idea for a little boy who wanted to be a knight and now he's going to learn magic instead and fly. It turns it a little dark, right? And Euron does feel like the absolute dark answer to what could happen to Bran. Oh, yeah. Like, I think there's definitely, I've said it a million times, like, there's, there are definitely so many hints of a, the darkest path for Bran. Like, you know, dark Bran and there's going to be some dark brand next book. Next book is yeah. going to be dark brand. And hopefully, you know, that's not the last book. You know, hopefully it doesn't say dark brand, but. Yeah, no, I agree. And... I think, I think, you know, I think brand has to learn from that because you have a lot of people who don't. Part of the, the argument and the exploration of the book is looking at all those different ways and paths that people can take, not just a singular one, not just because not just because you have chosen, you know, darkness or like something bad has happened to you, you stay that way that people can grow. Yes. Yeah, it has to change. Skadoosh. It has to be like it can't be the same thing from the front of the se- the books, right? It has to have some sort of answer at the end. Even if it's not like an exact answer at the end. <laughs> In that chapter that Sabrina talking about, I mean it's tough cuz yeah, Brandas are horrible thing but like they're all really scared and Jojen then Master Jojen and he's really scared and he he specifically asks Bran to quiet down Hodor. Yeah that's a that's a good thing you pointed out because I think Jojen we see him as this sort of very mature guiding light and he isn't always he's literally like 13 years old or like something like that I don't I don't expect someone who's that age to have all the answers, even though he's been raised to think that he does because of the green dreams. And thankfully, Mira pushes back on that. She's like, just because you can dream it doesn't mean that that's the only answer. I know. But I think the, the if I can go for a quote, and, and it's funny because there's a lot of, I can't really quote it without yelling, but we know George loves to capitalize things. But here it's not capitalized. It's, you know, it's a little story. It's be quiet, Brian said in a shrill, scared voice, reaching up 
uselessly for horror's legs as he crashed past, reaching, reaching. So, you know, we got to gauge the violence there. Horror staggered close his mouth. He shook his head slowly from side to side, sank back to the floor and sat cross-legged. When the thunder boomed, he scarcely seemed to hear it. The four of them sat in the dark tower, scarce daring to breathe. Bran, what did you do? Mira whispered. Nothing. Bran shook his head. I, I don't know. But he did. I reached for him the way I reached for Summer. He had been horror for half a heartbeat. It scared him. Mm. And that comes back around this chapter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. That's why it was interesting to bring that up. But it, and it does it does in a different way. Mm. Uh, it's a lot more explored. I mean, I, I don't want to jump the gun. But here, like, Brent doesn't notice. Mira notices. The only thing I really want to point out is the last sentence. It scared him. We're going to talk about Bran being scared a lot in our exploration of this chapter and the things that scare Bran. So I just want to want us to keep that in mind. What scares Bran? And that scared him. Yeah, it's a different context, this chapter, right? He's still scared when he does it, but it's because he's scared that he does it this mm, time. Yes. We'll be exploring that. So we have a podcast flirtation now going on. We have BFFs. Last episode, we spoke about our friends at the Il Podcast del Giaccio e del Fuoco, who are an Italian podcast covering A Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, I've been learning a tiny bit of Italian. I'm nothing special. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm getting some complicated sentences, right? My roommate, that guy I live with, and my mom and I are all, we're all kind of competing. We're using Duolingo and listening to some stuff, but we got a response from them. Uh, they really loved the way that we're talking about Bran. They said it's sweet, and they said that if we wanted to learn Italian. So if you're a listener and you're thinking about learning Italian and you want to learn Italian with the podcast, they have a seven-part series on the Rebellion, which, as they point out, it is one of my favorite things. They know me. They got me. Their episodes are the proudest of and very well done. And since we know the subject and are familiar with the characters, it would be really easy to learn that way. So I will keep that in mind and download that up. I have to go watch that, listen to that. And they also made up a timeline of the war, and they wanted to kind of organize every event in a single simple calendar. And I got to take a look at that. I'm very, very interested. So thank you so much for writing us back. I have some podcasting to listen to. And this is from Chiara, Beatrice, Domenico, and Filippo over at the podcast so thank you guys for writing in i really appreciate it yeah this was um i don't know if y'all remember was inspired by one of our listeners who her name was also Anne, but it's not you Anne, who was saying that she's been learning english and has been listening to the podcast to to do that so if you want to brush up on any of your italian everyone the podcast del giaccio e del fuoco is the place yes and then finally, we also received a great email from our friend Maddie, but we are going to be reading this next week because it ties in a little better with Adawada as opposed to ASOS Bran. It's kind of nice. She wrote us a great mini essay, our green queen Maddie did, and I'm like, I'll just read this and then close the podcast up. Like, we did good. That will be our first A Dance with Dragons episode. Thanks, Maddie. All right. Well... 
folks, it's time to jump into our lightning round to tell you about what we missed between episode 181, Brand 3, A Storm of Swords, and episode 182, Brand 4, A Storm of Swords. I will launch us off with John 5. John makes for Castle Black, leaving the free folk behind. Daenerys 4. After meeting with sellswords, the Stormcrows helped Daenerys win the battle, freeing slaves along the way. Arya 8. Arya meets the ghost of Highheart and is kidnapped by Sandra Clegane. Catelyn 5. After visiting Old Stones, Rob makes his will known. Samwell 3. At White Trees, Sam and Gilly think all is lost. But a talking bird comes to guide them, and they are greeted by one of Sam's brothers from long, long ago. Arya 9. Sandra and Arya embark on the journey to ransom Arya to her brother at the Twins. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Turn back is how I feel. Turn around. John 6. John warns Molestown to evacuate and at Castle Black learns of Bran's quote-unquote fate and rests up for the incoming battle. Catalan 6. Something begins to feel off as the party approaches the twins. <laughs> what you're doing to us right now is really hard. <laughs> Arya 10. Sandra and Arya make their way to the twins. I'll make it up to you and I'll read Catalan 7. Not my hair. Ned loves my hair. <laughs> a lot of hair pulling in that relationship. Jesus. Arya 11. At the castle, Sandor realizes the fate of Arya's family in time to get them out. John 7. Igrid dies in Jorah's <laughs> arm. Oh, that's like a relief. <laughs> Look, this isn't my fault. George wrote this. Like, he wrote the books. I'm just telling you what happened, okay? I know. Don't blame me. <laughs> Don't blame me. I know. And I was looking at, you know, the timeline. I always like to recontextualize a chapter, looking at a little bit the timeline where it falls in regard to other chapters. And I'm like, oh my God, that chapter is a week after the Red Wedding. Yeah. And as we get into Brand 4, at the Night Fort, a, a little less sad of a chapter. At the Night Fort, we hear guest rate is important. Through fractured stories, and a night's watchman arrives to give Bran his next direction. And so we open Storm of Swords Bran 4 with It is only another empty castle, Mira said as she gazed across the desolation of rubble, ruins, and weeds. No, thought Bran. It is the night fort, and this is the end of the world. What a perfect start of a chapter, right? Chilling, kind of metal, man. That's a, that's a metal way to start a chapter, and it's the end of the world. George has some some metal some metal gall going on here. Yeah, it really harkens back to part of the inspiration for the wall for George, right? He wanted to create something like the wall after visiting Hadrian's Wall in the UK, and and he felt as he was standing there, he was wondering what it would feel like to to be a soldier guarding this, and looking out across the across it and thinking of it as the end of the world. So he's he's really bringing back that inspiration. It's like, well, this is how I felt about it, so let's just put it in my book. Yeah, that is, I agree with you, Chloe. Wonderful way to open the chapter. Wonderfully sets the tone. That's going to be a horror chapter. Be there for it, guys. And so that expression, the end of the world, is not the only time it's used to refer to the wall. I want to think about your guys thought on that expression 
there's obviously the very like culturally biased. That's the end of civilization. After that, just barbaric lands. But also, like, Lysane's dragon wouldn't cross the wall. So, end of the world? What do we think? I love that you're bringing Fire and Blood, your noted favorite book, into this, Anne. Thank you. Thank you for bringing I did some reread, you know, because I love you. (laughs) I mean, do you remember that day he released it on his blog? Oh, that was such a crazy day when he released that, like, blurb. Remember that? I'm sorry. I just had this great memory of that. I I was so alive in that moment. I'm a a slut for anything, right? Like, give me a word, George. Like, ten. Ten words. I'm ready. Great blurb when he released it. It was such a fun time. But coming back to that, I'm really appreciating the Alisan and Jaehaerys stuff from Fire and Blood more because of the last chapter basically being focused on Alisan, right? You know he had to have thought about that and launched off of that a little bit when he wrote Queen's Crown. Coming back to Fire and Blood, he had to have been thinking of these chapters, and it is a thinker. It does make you wonder, and I like what you've pointed out with kind of that double use of the end of the world being, oh, the end of civilization, which as we get to the end of Storm, right? And Stannis comes and saves the day. Stannis, Stannis, and, uh, you know... Saving the day with all of his swords and armor, breaking down the free folk. Exactly. Exactly. A la Davos fingers. It's really interesting because that double way of looking at it, you see later Stannis comes and cuts down the free folk who were invading that are real people that lived in that land and have cultures and traditions. And it's obviously not the end of the world. I mean, there are people seeking it. Bran is trying to go through to the end of the world. It's uh, something that sounds like an impossible task. Yes, because very early on in the first book, we have the first crow dream. We have a vision Mm. of that land of always winter way, way, way far north. That is the literal end of the world. There's nothing behind the curtain of light. That's the end of the world. But the dragon wouldn't cross. And also, you know, I love you. You know, I have a few more Allison quotes. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because also, like, Bran's chapter comes after John has already crossed back into Westeros, right? We've spent, and and Sam, technically, as we find out. But (laughs) we've spent a lot of time north of the wall already. We know that this isn't the end of the world, so it really goes to play up brand's immaturity you know because he's nine years old and it really hammers that home because you're like well this isn't the end of the world there's a whole other like life beyond it it just happens to be the wall and this is a story you were told just like how everything else in this chapter revolves around these are stories you were told true or not we see you know multiple times people crossing that side of the wall and then we see obviously Men's of the Night's Watch using the gates to go beyond the wall. But do we see in either one of the books people besides Men of the Night's Watch crossing from Westeros illegally to beyond the wall? Not not like, I mean, we, we just discussed, right? Stannis and his army do so. But through the gates, or do they... Well, I well, I don't know if Stannis's army comes through the gates, right? They, they I think, sail up there oh. and then come around that way. So that is obviously like one way you can do it. And part of it, it's it's kind of funny, right? Because George comes up with this expression or that that emotion of feeling that something is the end of the world, visiting Hadrian's Wall, and like George, like 
we know how the world works in our real life. It is round. Alright, first of all, apparently people need to be told this nowadays too sometimes. The world is round. There is a world beyond Hadrian's Wall, which we know because we just know this, right? It is a thing we know. I feel like I don't have to explain that. I hope not. Yeah, that thing in the water. And also, that's true. I mean, we have that little bit of red cloth that menstruator. It's really important to him mm -hmm. that he has. So yes. It's also... This is some some stuff to ponder as we cross the wall at the end of the episode, especially. We'll come back to some of that, I think, because it is another world, another realm, it feels like, that they're moving into. And that's a central theme of this episode. Can, can mm -hmm. it be crossed? I know it's coming up later in the chapter, but we think that touched upon a bunch of times. The gate is sealed, the gate is sealed, the gate is sealed, the gate has been sealed. And it's the big reveal at the end of the chapter. And, you know, there's even the Pandora's box feel to it. What happens when the gate comes unsealed, right? What happens when these charms that are in place no longer stand? Will it all of a sudden crumble and out of Pandora's box comes the one bad thing, which is, you know, the things that come in the night that we'll talk about. And even looking at the wall like the veil, right? The end of the world. Also the veil between life and death, because beyond the wall lies a lot of death. Yeah, it's very hero's journey that crossing into the threshold of the land of the dead, but also kind of literally because there are zombies. <laughs> oh yeah, Rand's. I mean, George loves his hero's journey, obviously, but arguably, Rand's chapters are the ones mirroring the hero's journey the closest. It's true. He is the last hero. He's the new last hero, right? And we're going to see his sword break, his horse die. His friends die. His dog well, yeah. die, Eliana. What the yeah. fuck? Well, yeah. I mean, I Oh, is Horror both his dog and his horse? I put him in the friend category. Well, he is a dog dog. He is a dog yeah. dog. But I do think we are, we are kind of like primed to think of Hodor to an extent as mm -hmm. something like like his horse slash his mount, which is something that the story wants you to question because you're like, how can you think of him like an animal? As as Maester Lewin reminds us constantly, Hodor is a man. Yeah, a human. So Bran had wanted to reach the wall and find the crow, but now that they're here, he's kind of filled with dread because, you know, he, he'd had a dream before this and we get some details on the dream and he refuses to think or speak about it, even though Mira can kind of tell something's wrong. And he thinks if he never talked of it, maybe he could forget he ever dreamed it, and then it wouldn't have happened, and Rob and Greywind would still be. And he trails off. First of all, this is horrible. I'm feeling attacked, and I would like to sue. I will put some litigation forward, because how dare you? Also, it's showing us knowing without knowing, right? He's refusing to know, and he never truly gets to grieve or allows himself to grieve for the Red Wedding. In fact, by refusing to look and refusing to open his eyes, it's questionable if he really understands or comprehends what happened at the Red Wedding and the deaths they occurred, both Rob's first death and his second death. That would be very traumatizing to feel and see connected to everyone else in that hive mind of those siblings and of their wolves. In Adoda, A Dance with Dragons, Bran 1, the other wolves made do with his leavings. The old male fed first, then the female, then the tail. They were his now. They were pack. No, the boy whispered. We have another pack. Lady's dead and maybe Greywind too, but somewhere 
There's still Shaggy Dog and Nymeria and Ghost. Remember Ghost? I'm curious to see how not grieving and not coming to that acceptance will reflect in his arc, especially in The Wind's a Winner. Maybe we'll get visions and he'll finally come to an understanding and to grieve, but by that time that he comes to, this is, this is like some crucial timing for him to grieve, like right now when it's happened. By stuffing that down and not experiencing it, and also where he is in his training with the Three-Eyed Crow with Blood Raven, how he processes it may not be in a healthy way and may add to some of these themes of, you know, him beginning to use Hodor more without regard for Hodor or others or animals, etc. That subplot, too, of Mira grieving is really important, I think, because Mira, this entire journey, has to grieve because she knows what's to come for Jojen. Any moment it could happen to him. So that's kind of how she lives her life, right? And in dance, that becomes way heavier for her especially. But Bran avoiding his family's death in his mind while Mira's forced to face it head on. It's a, a big clash of these two characters. That's something we he already does. that it just reminded me of in A Game of Thrones with his dad. I mean, it's not really grieving per se, but how he processes his father being gone and he wants to go to the crypt. Remember the episode where he sees his father in the crypt and he wants to go to the crypt? He's in a constant state of denial, you know, so yeah. which is the first part of, you know, the grieving process, but he just stumbles through denial. And I think that, again, that's something I want to touch on a little bit later. I have a huge tangent regarding that because I think that is going to have a huge impact on how he's going to use his powers. But the fact that he's stuck at the denial process of grieving. Yeah. It's like he's not even necessarily... he he. We don't see him grieving, right? We don't see him grieve his father, really. We don't get the time to do that because all of a sudden, oh we're under attack or like, oh, we have to have this like feast, this party now because our family is going to war. He doesn't get time to grieve. And also it, it's different because at that time he's like, I don't really know if these dreams are real or not. Right. And so at the same time, the grief comes together with this huge change happening in his life of like, you'd think it was puberty, but turns out actually you're magical. So surprise and then so for him this dream is another example of that it's like i'm not supposed to have this information someone should be telling me this someone should be here caring for my feelings as someone who has experienced loss and and trying to give that information to me as opposed to me having to deal with this on my own right and you contrast that with sansa who's delivered the news in pro probably also one of the worst possible ways which is oh my abuser has used wielded this information against me in a really pain, painful way and then also now you have brands like den in this denial phase but it's not even that he's like at grief yet because he's also dealing with what happened to him and by that i mean not dealing he's just in this state of constantly repressing all of these ideas and not confronting them this is only this is like one of the second things that he's like not dealing with right the first being what happened to him in regards to Jamie throwing him from a tower. But this is also what Bloodraven has told him to do. And that is kind of funny and not healthy because it actually turns out that's the same advice Jamie gives Tommen. He's like, mm, I just go away inside myself. But Bloodraven doesn't want Bran to go away 
inside himself because I think it's different. You have the power to live in the past and you have to warn people. You can't stay living in the past, but also at the same time, you have to confront what happens to you. If you look back, you are lost, but at the same time, you have to look back in order to move forward. We'll start to cover more Bloodraven next week, right? But that's also what Bloodraven does and Probably. has done his entire life. He goes to the wall and then he goes away inside himself and disappears to everyone, eventually. Bran has to fight against that. Talking about repression, again, that's not something that was told to Bran, but it's just, you know, you want to talk about his dad? You want to talk, that's so nattered. The You know, the guy would never want to think about John or his sister's death. Yes. You know, Tower of Joy yeah. match, you know? So, and also, like, we don't really know much, but just through glimpses in the story books, or he also seems to be really a king of winter uh, pattern to like repress things, like repress their true natures. So it, it's very much like producing, Ren's very much reproducing generational trauma there. Yeah. You know? And it's interesting you bring that up as a king of winter thing because we're seeing what if Bran's not that he's a king of summer. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, or a dream, That's or a, or a dream of spring. A dream of spring. <laughs> <laughs> There's also something great in that generational trauma you've pointed out of like we've talked a little bit of him being a second son that not necessarily a reluctant leader but an unlikely asterisk leader, a very unlikely leader. Shouldn't have been him. Shouldn't have had to be him. But yet now it is. And I feel like a lot of these lords that we see, even, you know, like, akin back to Cregan, uh, a lot of these lords that we have a little bit of information on seem to be in that similar pattern. Ned. Yeah. Well, afraid of the night fort and afraid of her admitting it to the reeds, Bran thinks he has to be as brave as Rob. Jojen is confident that they're safe, but Jojen also did not grow up with old Nan's scary stories. He just grew up, you know, with his dad's actual real stories. Whatever. Normal. Actually, that is kind of normal. Jojen is confident <laughs> that they're safe, but the Night's King at the Night Fort, the Rat Cook serving the Andal King his delectable pie, the 79 Sentinels standing watch, brave Danny Flint being raped and murdered, King Sherrit cursing the Andals, and the Prentice Boys facing the thing that comes in the night. Also, Blind Simeon Star Eyes with his fighting hounds and Mad Axe, butchering his brothers in the dark. Just really quickly, because that's the one we really have nothing to say about. Nowhere else in the book is there any other mention of King Sherrod, so um, we might as well like be done with it. Which is weird for a king. Like one thing George really gave us a lot of is history books, which should talk about kings. So I'm like maybe a Barrow King, because they do curse. There's a couple quotes. There's the North, the King's a winner, and there's that there's historical proof existing for the war between the Kings of Winter and the Barrow yeah. Kings to their South, who styled themselves Kings of the First Men and claimed supremacy over all First Men everywhere. Even Starks themselves, runic records suggest their struggle, dubbed the Thousand Years' War by the Singers, was actually a series of wars that lasted closer to 200 years than a thousand ending when the last Barrow King bent his knee to the Kings of Winter and gave him the hand of his daughter in marriage. Oh, is it a joke about the Hundred Years' War, which is a big inspiration I think for so. George? I see. Yeah, I was thinking that. Oh, you know, but there's, I mean, that's a great one. There's literally one where, where it says the Barrow Kings, if anyone defies them as being kings, they'll, like, drain their corpse of life. The other one there is, do-do-do... 
Other tales recorded in Kennett's Passages of the Dead claim a curse was placed on the Great Barrow that would allow no living man to rival the first king. This curse made these pretenders to the title grow corpse-like in their appearance as it sucked away their vitality and life. This is no more than legend, to be sure, but that the Dustins share blood and descent from the Barrow Kings of old seems sure enough. To be sure. Yeah, that's interesting with that quote. I didn't, there's so much in that book. I, I love that book for some of these little things because it's like, it slips your mind. That's a little crazy that they drain the life force from their enemies, basically. I know, which, again, like so much cross-pollination because grow corpse-like? Uh, that could that could sound very you know white. Yes, like zombie esque a little bit. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Duh, the opposite of life. Wow, the barrows. It could be, and it is a total Georgism, right? Like I, one of my favorite things he does is when he's just having a good time, making up history as he goes, making work for all of us that have to follow it for no reason because it doesn't come up again. But the name was interesting, too. The name kind of, I was looking at some of the etymology, and the name Sherit first arose in the Anglo-Saxon tribes of Britain and is derived from having lived in Cheshire, where the family was found since the early Middle Ages. So interesting, like the first family. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he's kind of like one of those figures that I know has kind of inspired theories like, I think, Bolt On or yes, things like that. Bolt On comes from that, Bolt right? Bolt On. You have to say that like that. I, ha- I also, as on, with the dash. you're the only one who knows this, um, every time I say it, I also do the little hand motion of like, you're bolting something on. Oh, like wax on, wax off, but bolt on, bolt, bolt on. on. So there's also that mention of Mad Axe. And even just from that little bit about Mad Axe butchering his brothers in the dark, it made me think of the hooded figure in Winterfell. Like immediately I was like, oh, butchering his brothers in the dark, like Mad Axe. Hmm. Do you think the ghost of Winterfell is also a ginger? Maybe. I mean, can't tell in the dark, can you? Or a former ginger? Oh. But then I really couldn't tell you, but maybe. It's anyone's Game of Thrones at that point. Anyone's Game of Thrones. While these stories all took place thousands of years ago, and some, not all, Bran still feared them. Once he had asked Uncle Benjen if they were true, and Benjen never really confirmed nor denied it, he just said, well... We did leave the night fort 200 or so years ago. One thing about stories. You know, George loves to be meta about the nature, the texture of stories. Oral storytelling versus canon. The place of the author. Rewinding. I know some of you. I'm going to make, you know, a tiny minority of you beautiful listeners very happy. Because I know there's at least one of you who is a D&D fan. <laughs> I know, there's just one. There's, there's gotta be one. But not that D&D. There's gotta be, just for that intersectionality of Girls Gone Canon fan and Dimension 20 fan who might be watching the latest season of Dimension 20. And one of the latest episodes of Dimension 20 got me thinking really about that. I will not get too much into the details for the ladies who are not watching that, and that's going to be boring. But for the person, for the 1% of your listeners who's watching that, in one of their latest episodes, so it's a D&D, it's just it's a D&D podcast, you know, just to re- reconceptualize. 
he was being very meta about the nature of stories. The player characters were in a magical library where there were physical spaces that were symbolic of where the stories were could be changed because they were just told orally versus the place where the stories were written in ink and the magical, possibly antagonist people that were the author. Then our player characters wanting to take control of their own story for you all the context you need. That brought a new light to the way I read that chapter. So especially I think like, it can fit into that little quote. Are those stories true? What's true about those stories? What makes a story true? Like it, Schrodinger of a story, it's both true and it's both not true. So like Benjamin like replies we've less the night for 200 years ago which it's a true fact. And we, we were being told again and again and again, the night fort, you know, the abandoned night fort, just because it was too big and too costly. Like, we're told that all the time. In all the quotes about the night fort, it said that the abandoned replaced the huge and ruinous costly castle. We have that quote at least four times. But we also have, and that's my second Allison quote for you, during her visit... To the night fort in around 58 AC, Alison writes to her king, the night fort itself she found grim and sinister. It is so huge, the men seem dwarfed by it like mice in a ruined hole, she told Jairus, and there is a darkness there, a taste in the air. I was so glad to leave that place. It's very vague, but there's a sense of dread. It's not just a practical matter. She feels something. She feels something. That's great because Bran does too. I mean, they feel something's yeah, wrong. Yeah, so you can put the finger onto it. And that's like the starting point of the story. You know what I mean? That's, that's what's in common yeah. with everything. It's that germination of something really wrong at the heart of the Night Force. She feels it. There's something that you're saying that's interesting with Benjen too, right? Because I'm really, I'm really into these days the omission of information meaning something. I love when George does that. It's something that like, what's a book turn on for me? I'm like, ooh, yeah, omit information some more to make you really think. And he doesn't answer him, but these stories are the answer, right? Like the feeling that Alisan felt at the night fort, which we see her become a big proponent for taking the night fort down and abandoning it, right? She's very much like, they need to get out of there. That place is bad and y'all need to get out of there. Like, that's a murdery place. Get out. Bad things are going to happen there. And Bran shows up. He's like, bad things are going to happen here, Jojen, dude. This isn't good. This isn't good. This isn't good. That is what has culminated all of these stories passed down orally. That feeling inspires those stories, whether they're real or not. Something in them is real. Exactly. And part of me kind of wonders at the same time, like, is this something we should also be questioning in terms of like the stories tell us that Xing is bad. For example, the stories over the years told us that the free folk were bad. And then we find out, oh, they're just like they're people, same as everyone else, right? And something good kind of actually ends up happening at the Night Ford in that he meets the brother of his brother in a way that's kind of like an extended family. Sam's like his in-law, if you think about it. <laughs> but, you know, like a, a good thing happens there. And so it's like, obviously these stories have been twisted over the years, but 
sometimes they're worse than we thought. Sometimes they're better than we thought. Like, was Night's King sa sacrificing people? Probably bad. But at the same time, like, how did that get twisted? We see that there's a story of love, maybe, of devotion that's there too. Or like, the 79 Sentinels, I mean, clearly they were running from something. But anyway, I know you're talking about how George is this master of omission. And, and I just really wanted to say, like... He's so good at it. He's omitted the sixth and seventh book. I'm sorry. I could not. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> oh my God. He has omitted the sixth and seventh books so far. So far. But he's a gardener, Eliana. He can garden those books into being. So I think we should give him a break. Uh, yeah, it goes into like those histories and stories being that overarching theme of Brand's POV. And not just Brand's POV, but I really think a storm of swords, right? Because. Bran in A Storm of Swords, I mean A Storm of Swords too. Some some of the greatest storytelling of all time is the story that doesn't give us everything about the rebellion, but paints a very new picture about the rebellion and also doesn't. Again, the omission. And then in oh, John's the last the chapter, yeah, like the rest of the story, John's last chapter right before this, you know, the one when Egret died, we talked about it earlier very briefly, womp womp womp, but he also has a history of the wall and of the free folk and of Lord Commanders that he is going back and forth with Donald Noy about before the battle and he's thinking about. And we have this line, Did you know, 600 years ago, the commanders at Snowgate and Nightfort went to war against each other, and when the Lord Commander tried to stop them, they joined forces to murder him. The Stark and Winterfell had to take a hand and both their heads, which he did easily because their strongholds were not defensible. Different times, obviously, because there was a Stark in Winterfell and the Night's Watch was a little stronger at this time. Interesting with the whole murdering the Lord Commander bit there. But we have stories in all of these chapters going on right now. Oh, yeah. And also, they only have records of the Night's Watch Commander going back 600 years ago. 13th of Commander that was murdered by... Okay, anyway, that's a tangent. We can, we can that is, really that. <laughs> so, yeah. Omissions, exactly. We had that kernel of something. So does that something, you know, again, then orality manifest and is transmitted as, you know, mad acts, the thing that comes in the dark, or then like kind of amorphous fears for children. Or do we then attribute it to the wrong things, the wildling? Or then like, do we use it to tell moral tales, family nine sentinels? You cannot desert your post or bad things will offend to you. Or the rat cook, which is a tale about guest right, which is very important in the North, you know? It's all like incarnation. We use the same kernel of something twisted and evil. And then we're going to make weave that into a story to serve a purpose. And I think that's something that George is exploring very much in that chapter. That's why he's, he's giving us like a dump of a bunch of name of tales some that we never hear about again, when he could have explored Grant's fear in that chapter in other ways. To go back to something you said, oh yeah, yeah, good things come in that chapter. The fears, what he was afraid of doesn't manifest. Those fears don't manifest. But something really bad is going to happen in that chapter. We're going to touch on it. There's going to be at least one really bad thing that we see happening in that chapter. Mm. That's true. We're making our way to it. Ren is a lover of all tales, but his favorite were always the ones about monsters and the knights. As Sansa says in A Clash of Kings, 
and there were others, monstrous savages out of one of old Nan's tales, the scary one Bran used to love. As Bran's story progresses, he thinks more and more about the monsters and less and less about the knights. And this is a classic horror chapter where George's early career as a horror writer really shines. Absolutely. And maybe this is jumping ahead too much, but you were saying bad things happen in this chapter. Bran's so afraid of all these monsters and bad things happening at the night fort. He's the monster in the chapter. No, he is the monster in the chapter. <laughs> yeah. Your monster, Eliana. He is the thing that comes in the night. Absolutely. He is the night's king. What? Sorry. Uh, possibly. Not, not, is that theory not practical? Not, not in that <laughs> chapter. But, you know, he is possibly the night's king. Yeah. But, but here is the thing that comes in the night. He yep. is the thing driving someone crazy. Okay, jumping ahead again. The morning is bright, but the wind is loud, causing the keep to groan as it settles and the scrabble of rats can be heard under the hall. He thinks the rat cook's children running from their father. Hmm. Trees grow through what were the stables, a weirwood through the kitchen, and even summer's uneasy. Bran tries to smell the place through summer and doesn't like it. They find there's no way through. Jojen insists on seeing for himself and says he had a green dream that there is and that his dreams do not lie. I know. Bran, why does Bran always have to be an asshole to Jojen? I mean, Jojen's not always right, but they really have an antagonistic relationship. It's not like Bran has ever been to the night fort either. He's afraid, right? Like, he's very scared. He's lashing out a little. And also, I think it's hard because... Jojen, in a way, takes away his autonomy in a different way, right? Bran can't do the things he wants, even though he's a prince, because Jojen has the crystal ball, and Jojen doesn't release information, like, up front, obviously, because things change and dreams change and his interpretations of his dreams change, but I think that's frustrating for Bran. That does take away a part of his ability to do things, is that he has to follow Jojen's plan. And especially when he's grown up hearing these horror stories about the Night Fort, I can at least see why he's probably pushing back. Like, maybe we just shouldn't, dude. <laughs> maybe not. We should just not go there. <laughs> yeah. But I think that has to be a part of it, right? That Jojen, even though he serves Bran loyally, you know, I mean, he's very respectful, does everything for his grace. Also, kind of like Davos to Stannis in a way, right? Like, tells him the bitter truths that Bran doesn't want to hear or do. It's a complicated dynamic between what Vassal prince elder to an extent by a few years to not and then also the one who has the knowledge versus the one who doesn't a lot of different things yeah. the shamanism too right yeah. like it's almost like they're in the same group but not yeah socially and then being able-bodied versus not etc mm -hmm. there's that yeah but there, i feel like there's also a thing about responsibility because mm. bren is still a child and jojen reminds him of his responsibilities. Yeah, it makes him feel small, like a child child. Yeah, which children are small. It's true. Yeah, but also <laughs> like when he would want to live through summer instead, right? If he had his way, like being a kid, right? If you had your way, you'd be outside like half naked, covered in mud all day, right? Like when you're a kid, nothing matters. And he wants that. He craves that. He craves that freedom, that independence that he will never in his life be able to have because of his disabilities. And, and I mean, I get it because when I was a kid... Much younger than Bran, though. I, I think I've disclosed this already. I wanted to grow up to be a dog or a horse um, when I was four years yes, old. Yes, you did. 
Um, I wanted to grow up to be a dog, so I understand why Bran would want to be Summer. Uh, I mean, I want to be a bog witch, and I'm 45. Yeah. Yeah. Like... It doesn't really change. No. Good dogs and good bogs. Am I right? A, do- a dog in a bog. Actually, I bet <laughs> that dog's having a good life, too. Anyway. The gate was sealed when the watch abandoned the post for Deep Lake, almost as impenetrable as the wall itself. Bran says they should have followed John, thinking of the day they watched him ride off in the storm, and we get a little peek back to what happened. They should have gone to Castle Black, he thinks. They should have helped John fight the free folk that were attacking him, but they are only four, even though they thought they could commandeer a ship a couple chapters ago. And he did help his brother. It almost cost him Summer, though. Summer had killed three of the men, but one of the arrows to come after him gave Bran a sudden stab of pain driving him out of Summer. They huddled in the dark with no fire as the storm died, and Bran tried to reach out to Summer again, but the pain drove him back like a red-hot kettle. We discussed earlier how a lot of the stuff from A Song for Leah and those themes carry on into this one, right? And this makes me think a lot about this idea of pain and loneliness. It, it's it's on a literal level here, but it's something that we see throughout the story, right? Like how pain and fear causes us to push others away. Because Summer is in pain, Bran cannot reach him. He wants to be alone to lick his wounds. But at the same time, sometimes when you're in pain and you're making it hard for people to reach you, even though they care about you, that's sometimes when you need them most, right? Like we see, for example, at the end of this book, Tyrion finds out this hurtful thing from Jaime about what happened to him in the past when it comes to Taisha. And and the pain that Jamie does to Tyrion because of that untruth, because of that omitting of that fact, is a very real, deep, and hurtful pain, just like what Summer is doing now. And because of it, Tyrion lashes out. He pushes Jamie away, claims that he killed Jamie's son, even though he didn't, but everyone else thinks he did. But anyways... So that's something that we're seeing throughout this story, and it makes me think of something that that our friend Warren said in reaction to our coverage of A Song for Leah, of like, you know, while the, the conclusion that Leah comes to isn't maybe like the only one, but the idea of you need to open yourself up to other people in order to receive love. Sometimes you need to open yourself up to and give love in order to be able to get it. Yeah, the pack survives, right? It's very much the pack survives is what it makes me think about. Even though they're all isolated right now, the goal is being stronger together. Yeah. Bran had been terrified Summer was dying, and he prayed to the old gods. You took Winterfell, and my father, and my legs. Please don't take Summer, too. And watch over Jon Snow, too, and make the wildlings go away. I have some very bad news about everything Bran just said right now. The first thing is that, yes, they took Winterfell. You're not going back there for a while. Yes, the father, the legs. Don't take Summer, too. Hmm. Watch over Jon Snow? Hmm. Make the wildlings go away? Hmm. These are all interesting things you're asking for, Bran. Okay, but Jon comes back. Hmm. Summer's not going to come back. It's going to be awful. When that happens, you're going to throw the book. You're going to be real mad at me specifically. I'm going to be... I'm already mad at you. (laughs) You're always mad at me. That's what keeps our interactions, you know, so fun. Sexy? I don't know. (laughs) I know, I feel like you're trying to make me mad at you, too. Why? I know, right? <sighs> I just like to get a rise out of my friends. Yeah. Yeah. I feel attacked. I know it. I'm an instigator. You should. You should. She's attacking. I know. I'm thinking that he's going to lo- that he would lose his mother 
you know, Rob and Greenwin a week later. It's fucking tragic. Yeah, he shouldn't have prayed. He should have just kept that one to himself. I mean, he prayed and there were no werewolves. Maybe that was a problem. Yeah. At least now he's surrounded by the one. I like the one that we have. We're going to talk about the one he's near now. I like that we're getting more weirwoods as we go mm. north, too. In, in all the chapters, right? In Sam's, in Brand's, in John's, we had a couple. They're everywhere. Well, the old gods had been good, though, to him that day, because the free folk had tried to take the causeway to Queen's Crown, but nearly drowned and marched off north by east like John had. That's a bad part. That, that's not good. Jojen makes them wait a little bit before they leave, puts some leagues between them, and later Summer ends up getting a snack, nursing himself back with uh, some parts of the free folk that had been left behind. He swims out to the island and Mira tends to his back leg and the gang gets back together. So there's a little tidbit in that chapter that, since we're talking about that, I, don't, I wanted to bring up because it, it kind of intrigued me. So it's a quote from that chapter and that says, the Tall, bold man yelled at them, his word echoing across the water in some tongue that even Jojen did not know. And that's a thing that I've been ruminating about for a while. I have a hard time coming up with a good in-universe reason as to why the old tongue would have disappeared from the north. In the world book, the text itself, it mentions runes. And we have master translations, so we have reason to think that it was a written language somewhat commonly used above the wall and the north is really in its own way isolationist why has he completely disappeared from the north like that makes no sense to me that they're not using both and endelos and the old tongue and i think the answer is george doesn't do well with other languages that's the meta answer that's like the not fun answer I do think culturally, we talked a little back when Bran was having some of his courtly politics lessons, right, in A Game of Thrones and in A Clash of Kings after his family's left and he's kind of ruling alongside Roderick, for example. It, it definitely seems like there are qualms from the Northerners that their culture has been kind of changed over time, gone a little less embraced, right? Like less of it was embraced and that they kind of have started to take on some of the South a little bit, right? Even back recently, when you think of like the idea of Southern ambitions and marrying off to the South and this and that, uh, even traditionally, it just seems that some of the traditions have not necessarily gone by the wayside. But that is interesting because during House of the Dragon, Eliana talked a lot about, you know, we were kind of mad that why didn't Rhaenyra start teaching Valyrian to her children from a very young age, right? Like, if they are to be the heirs, that is a very important thing that they should know. And it's interesting to think, like, why? And it is probably the meta answer. It's just a garden. It's also a gardening effect, right? He was like, ooh, I should have this man speaking the old lost language of the North. But it would be something very important, especially for, like, the Stark children to know, right, of their heritage. Yeah. I mean, historically, it would not disappear unless there's, like, a political reason like, I can think, taking the France ex example, like, France had a very strong political will to make regional language disappear. They were bad to their own people. It was forbidden to be taught in school. They would only teach canon French and not regional languages. But we have, again, like, back to Alice, Alaric says, 
at first, first response, no, I'm not marrying any of my kids to, you know, any Southern because we keep our things. And that was not that long ago. That dude should have been speaking the old tongue. He should have been like someone who thinks that way. There's no reason he's not teaching the old tongue to his kids. That doesn't jive in universe. It's been thousands of years already by that point. I think it's really telling that the people that still speak it are giants and free folk tribes and thens know how to speak it, right? And where do they live? And where were they put? And where were they not allowed? I mean, I think it's obvious to see kind of why it died out. It makes me think of the runes, right? When you think of the Royces with the runes on their sigil, are those northern runes? Or are, I can't remember if they actually are first men runes, because I believe they're first men runes, right? The Royces are first men houses back to the Battle of the Seven Stars. They were a first men house technically, and so I believe those are northern runes. I think it's just very old and forgotten locationally, right? If it's the other thing is George, I think he said in this interview, I was trying to find a quote that he did say, so Eliana, to your point, he doesn't have a whole imaginary language the way Tolkien did. Tolkien was an Oxford Don, could spend decades laboriously inventing Elvish. Alas, he is only a hardworking sci-fi and fantasy novelist and doesn't have his gift. He hasn't created the Valyrian language. The best he could do was sketch in chief tongues of his imaginary world in broad strokes and give them characteristic sounds and spellings, which you can kind of see that when it comes to some of those shorter consonant names of the houses in the north, right? Like Stout, Wool, Stark. So I could see that. But Skagos, I believe they probably speak the old tongue there. If we get any glimpse at it in the next two books with Davos going there and Rickon and Osha, we might see some of that. Maybe Rickon will start learning it. Rickon could. And also something so for me, when when because we've talked also about the diversity of the different free folk tribes north of the wall, I wouldn't be even surprised while we say that, yeah, the giants and the free folk and like all speak the old tongue that they have different variations on it, right? They have different dialects that could even be almost very, like almost un-understandable to one another, right? Because, but I think also, you know, again, on that meta level, part of why George has the old tongue being spoken by some of the people who are on the other side of the wall, part of it is because they, yeah, while they have a diversity of different tribes, keep that sort of homogeneity. They don't need the common tongue as much in order to communicate with not only the rest of the realm, but with the rest of the other the other uh, civilizations, right? In terms of trade and things like that, but also like he's he's emulating the way that like languages such as some of the Celtic languages, right? Eventually have become spoken by much more of a minority in the United Kingdom or Gaelic and, and how those languages have kind of, some people speak them but it's not as mu- it's not as prevalent and again some of them also have different versions of like different kinds of gaelic etc that are spoken around and that's something that george i don't think even thought about when he was coming up of- with the old tongue but if thinking in world maybe there's like tinfoil to be had of like what if the old tongue was a little too tied to some of the the magics that kind of fucked everything up yeah a little too magical but in the bad mm. way like zombies <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And realistically, it's also just showing us that we're closer to the wall. Yeah. Because it's still spoken beyond the wall, and this man lives right up by the wall. Kind of also goes along with the idea of, like, like like he just said, right? Like, oh, 
there's no more giants, you know, and or there's none of this, none of that. All these things are gone. Monsters are gone because this chapter is proving no, they're not. All these things are still real and still exist. Even then, what tongue were the speak the giants speaking? You know, for asking why are the the Northmen from Westeros speaking the common tongue and not the old tongue? Well, the giants are indigenous, right, to Westeros and. The old tongue was brought over by the first men. So what language were the giants speaking before? Because I don't imagine they were speaking the old tongue either. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, Chloe. I am not asking George to come up with the old tongue language. He's not a linguist. That's not his job. They could all in book be speaking common. Because again, like if masters can translate runes, that means that they still know something to be able to translate. Because we had mentioned of if Maser blah, blah, blah's translation can be trusted. So Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, to your mm. point, it makes no yeah. sense that the old race is tongue, because that's a human language. They don't need it anymore now, it seems, you know, in the south, the south of the wall is what I'm saying, south. Yeah. Not the, the north, which is above the wall. Winterfell sold out, you know? They were like, seven kingdoms, I guess so. I guess so. So they planned their next move. Bran says, Castle Black, Eastwatch, and Shadow Tower have open gates through the wall, so Mira decides to take a climb up the wall to get a better vantage point. Bran thinks it should be me, and it is disappointing feeling. He's imagining the greatest climb of them all, because once he was the climber. In spite of everything, it makes him smile, and he imagines the clouds breaking, the sun hitting everything, the transformation of white and blue glittering ice. Beautiful. He would see monsters there at the end of the world, but they couldn't pass as long as the wall stood strong. <laughs> he thinks, I want to stand on top with Mira. I want to stand on top and see. But he was a broken boy with useless legs, so all he could do was watch from below as Mira went up instead. <laughs> Poor Bran. Mira climbs up steps that were created by the watch, the Nightfort steps, as Lewin and Benjen had told Bran. These are the only steps that are still cut from the ice of the wall. New castles all had wooden or stone steps or ramps because ice is treacherous. The wall had wept icy tears, making these steps harder to climb. They were smooth and small and over time becoming swallowed by the wall. Meanwhile, the rest of the group does their own scouting on the ground. Summer finds a gray rat and Bran thinks, oh, it's the rat cook, but the rat cook was white. Actually, that's Remy, the rat from Ratatouille. Oh, oh, oh no, oh no, he is a little. It's brain. a cameo, yeah. or it also it makes me cameo. think of the Maesters, but also it makes me think of John mm -hmm. being like, mm, "This can't be my arrow because it's a different color." I was thinking about the the color there. I thought that was really interesting, especially because Summer finds a gray rat, like stark colored, and the rat cook was white, which reminds me of Ghost. Oh, mm. Ghost is a cook. Maybe Ghost is a cook. Oh. <laughs> Does anyone else wonder why there's so many rats in a castle that's been abandoned 200 years ago? That's a good ago? point. Yeah, because I was thinking that reading the chapter, I'm like, what What are they eating? Like, yeah. And so I started thinking. The last chapter had apples. So what about here? Yeah. there's. It's been abandoned so long ago. There's no reason rats are scavengers. They are going to leave next yeah. to humans. There are no humans. There's no reason for there to be rats. It makes no sense. And so, who else thinks there are obviously children of the forest? I'm sorry, the ones who sing the song of the earth. 
living underneath that castle and they have their little mm. e- economy ecology food like that's the only explanation i could think of and that's what makes everything so magical and it, i mean i, I know you say they're in the rats it's interesting yeah yeah because there's no yeah. reason i mean they could be yeah that's the rats walking around and spying that's why there are so many like they're like where are those people around here and there's no reason for rats to be in a place with no food deserted that explains the rats. The weirwood. We're going to talk about the weirwood in a bit too, because I thought the weirwood was really interesting because it's very young still, which means it yeah. wasn't necessarily planted. Like perhaps it was planted two hundred years ago, two hundred fifty years ago when they left. Yeah. Like why mm. would you plant one there after you leave? It's just growing up through the kitchen. That's not something that someone would do purposefully. Why slash how did this weirwood start growing exactly. there? Exactly. Might be the tenants that live in the basement. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm. yeah, I was exactly mm-hmm. thinking about that. And the construction of that castle is weird. Literally? The weird. stairs. Weird yeah. wood. Ah, weird wood. Weird. Weirding wood. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's yeah, weird. Yeah, but literally, I guess, too. The weirding way. Yeah, literally, this is the weirding way yeah. for Bran. Leto the second. <laughs> worm boy. Leto pizza. Made by Leto pizza rat. worm boy. <laughs> What is that? Uh, it's like a square pizza. Oh, like it's spelled L E D O though, not L E T O. L E Dingo, O. Oh my god! So after finding dark doors and rats, yum. You know, Jojen hopes to go to the cellar and the tunnels below, but Bran does not. He explains that the castle is twice as old as Castle Black, which is the first castle and the largest, but also. This is the first castle that was abandoned due to its size and the cost to maintain. Queen Allison had suggested it be replaced and Deep Lake was created, paid for by her jewels, and the night fort was left to the rats. Oh, the rats are the ones guarding it. Oh, maybe it's like maybe it's like in Beauty and the Beast, right? And the oh rats God. are the brothers watching the castle. Anyway, or like Cinderella. Anyways, so last episode, and you, you, you all were also discussing how Allison had a bad feeling about this fort anyway, and I was just like, I don't understand. This seems like an extra special fort. Maybe it's one that we should keep, but I guess it makes sense with the Black Gate, if that was there already, like, you can dependably abandon this one, because the Black Gate seems like a very secure way to make sure that the castle is manned without needing to be manned because you don't need a person there when you have a giant talking tree that's such a good point i didn't think about it but now i have it like in my head i can see her arriving there with a watchman and her saying so what defenses does this castle have and then like and then showing her the secret they like come they're like come look and then they like swoop their arms and they're like it's this and it's the rainforest cafe this is our talking, crying gate. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you just love him? <laughs> I mean, or, and there's or there's always that small possibility, because we've seen that time and time again, that they had totally at that point forgotten about the talking tree at the bottom of the well. I mean, we'll never know, but we've seen that happen. That's true. Mm-hmm. I I think they must have known, and maybe they're like, yeah, you're right, we can't abandon this tree. You take care of it. And the tree was like, okay. Okay. I mean, everything talks in this place, so. Yeah, it's like Beauty and the Beast. It is Beauty and the Beast, actually. It's like the abandoned Beauty and the Beast. Now, okay, I'm I'm allowing it. You're rehired. You're rehired. George loves Beauty and the Beast, so. It's true. 
that should be the title of this episode. George loves be our guest. The the beast, yeah, they come be to our guest. This is the be our guest. Like, be, be our, our guest, guest, right? And then Brand is right. like, no, no. <laughs> and gets me. And be our guest, be right? Yes, right. That all this episode. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So two centuries later, two centuries later from our last story from Queen Alisanne, both castles are empty and the night fort is full of ghosts. Nothing worked. Bran breaks down the story next of the 79 Sentinels who went south to be outlaws. Lord Riswell's youngest son had been one of them. They sought shelter in the Barrowlands, but Lord Riswell took them captive and brought them back to the night fort where holes were hewn in the wall for deserters to be sealed alive in ice. They left their posts in life, so in their death, their watch goes on forever, we read. This feels so ominous. It feels like it means something about the endgame of the story, especially if there's something like Bran giving a life sentence to a deserter beyond the wall. Who knows? Who knows? But also, I love the bringing in the Sentinels because it's very reminiscent of Jean's last chapter in The Wall, where at the battle they have scarecrows on the wall. They have their very own Sentinels. Men in black cloaks, visible on the roofs and tower tops as well, though nine of every ten happen to be made of straw. The Scarecrow Sentinels, Donald Noy called them, only were the crows, John mused, and most of us scared enough. I thought bringing John into this especially is interesting. Something about all of the times he wanted to run south to be with his family, right? And thinking what the 79 Sentinels would have been feeling and what they were running from. I have a hunch. I don't know if you two have a similar hunch of what they might have been running back from. Zombies in your head? But... That story is really, it, it becomes a little sadder too when it comes to Lord Riswell and what he does. He takes them captive, brings them back to the night fort to do their duty where they'll do their duty forever, but eventually gives himself to it too, out of love and duty for his son, especially because he probably knows what they're running from. There's something interesting about familiarity of it, right? For John and Benjen and coming into this kind of family gig with the, the commanders at the wall and the different Night's Watchmen. It makes me think most, I, I guess... We can talk about it a little later of like Jor and Jorah too. Yes. You know, you're you're talking about like if this will mean anything for Bran later, King of Summer, giving a life sentence to maybe a deserter. And I do I do think in my perspective, if John is resurrected and leaves the wall, I don't think there's a loophole. I think he has to be a deserter. And they've been playing it up over and over and again, like what will finally get you to desert, right? And we've discussed this quite a bit more during John's chapters of what would cause him to break his vows, what would cause him to desert. And it being family, I, I don't think that him dying releases him of his vows, which is, you know, what many people have said like oh well the vows say like you know until your death and i don't know maybe it would maybe it wouldn't right and and the show certainly plays it that way of him having died but i do think that just because the words say that you're a part of the night's watch until you die and you coming back like there's a literal way to take that but i have personally always felt that it misses the spirit of the vows and like the point of it and i've mm -hmm. always kind of seen the 79 sentinels as as proof of that right that's meant to show that the vows persist even into death again like the nature of that vows why did they desert they desert okay let's say zombies did they desert because they were scared aka our prologue or did they desert like to warn people like to call for help yeah like john and then they were turned back because no one believed them that's a good point because then like if john leaves to kind of i don't know 
get the realm to rally behind, hey, we got a big war against a bunch of zombies happening. That's still true to the spirit of the vows. But could it be seen like... It makes it muddy. Yeah, could it be seen like... I'm the horde that wakes the sleepers, but everyone else, because they have lost the vision of what they're supposed to be defending against, are, despite staying at their post, not acting as Night's Watchmen. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What is their post? What is their mission? Their vows transcend life and death, right? Like Their vows are more important and something bigger in protecting the realm and being one. And there's also something in there that makes me think of Quentin with men's lives have meaning, not their deaths, mm. right? So John dying as Lord Commander and what he does when he's alive on either side of the veil is more important than that. His actions will speak to that. I wonder if like you break your vows or something or you don't keep true to them and you're like going through the tree mouth, does it snapshot in the middle like <laughs> you don't get to pass and just chomps you? Oh my god. And on that, to piggyback on that, if he breaks his, you know, him dying, breaking his vows, or when he breaks his vows, is the punishment that they get to throw eggs at him? You know, eggs what? on him. Egg on him. Just eggs. Oh, egg How on. dare you, egg on? Just throwing eggs. Yeah. At egg on. Hmm. Much to think about, Eliana. And Anne. Much to think about. I know. I mean, well. again, like, he didn't desert, but John was killed for breaking his vows. Yeah, that one definitely seemed like he was breaking his vows. And he's like, let's go fight Winterfell, as you and I discussed back then, Chloe. We were like, that was a bad call. Little out of pocket, John. Not a thing I would have you announced knew what you were doing. to a room of people. Should have lied, maybe, and said he's threatening the Night's Watch. We must go end. I don't know. He, was. he could have politically. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the Night's Watch became House Stark. <laughs> we support House Stark now. Even though they're gone. <laughs> so, speaking of uh, people being gone, yeah, as you said, Lord Riswell takes the black to stand with his son. Oh, oh, whoa. <laughs> it is actually really sweet. They Special. spend half the day poking through the fallen towers, climbing the bell tower, and the rookery. All of these are empty. They find a vault of oaken casks in the brew house, a collapsed library. I wonder if those are still good. Uh, a dank dungeon. Rat juice. <laughs> For a fermented rat. <laughs> a dank dungeon to hold 500 men. It's rusted and falling apart. One wall remains in the Great Hall. The bathhouse is sinking. A thorn bush conquers the yard outside the armory, but the armory and forge still stands, albeit covered in cobwebs and rats. I love this description against the Hall stuff, too. Oh. In this book. I didn't really think about it, but the Brienne and Jamie stuff at Hall. You know, lots of decay. Their stories are tied together. The next POV is Jamie. Lots of rats. And the rats. Lots of rats. That's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, all this just obviously far too big for anyone to actually hold or take care of, too, on their own. Summer seems to hear noises that the human ear does not, baring his teeth at nothing, fur sticking up. Ooh, scary. They never see the rat cook, mad axe, nor the sentinels. They're in the wall. We went over this. By the time Mira returns, the sun has almost set. Mira saw the haunted forest, rising hills, untouched trees, sunlight on the lake, clouds, snow, icicles long as pikes, even an eagle circling, which may or may not be Veramir. I think he saw me too. I waved at him. But she doesn't see a way down. Having come this way already in John's chapters, we know there really isn't an easy way down. Without rope and an axe, she wouldn't be able to descend the other side, and the rest of the group wouldn't be able to with rope and axe, as we know. She asks if Jojen is sure he dreamed of this castle, that it's not the wrong castle just by chance, but 
he insists this is it. There is a gate here. It's funny how the rat cook Maddox is Sentinel. Like, I think that comes up three times throughout the chapter, those three particularly. Mm. And it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, we have three. Again, we didn't really go through the structure of the chapter, but we have like three parts in the chapter. And like that's mm. that little refrain, again, much like a song. Again, a lot of brand chapters in that book are structured like songs. Mm. And that's the chorus. Like neither and, and so sometimes the aura of the story changes, but that comes back. Like it comes back forth in each of the parts that it is like the break between the parts of the chapter. So I just want to throw that in here. It reminds me of Jamie's chapters, right, in Feast, when he starts repeating all the people that Cersei supposedly slept with from Tyrion and Moonboy, mm. for all I know, or John Connington with the ringing of the bells kind of becoming that chorus that they're hearing in every single chapter. Mm. Yeah, he loves yeah. that. Why are we talking about Jamie so much? Could he be next POV? Actually, oh my god, <laughs> no, you couldn't pay me to do Jamie again. God, leave me alone. Uh, I'd do it for free. Uh, I like the Jamie chapters. <laughs> Bran moves on to the They're next fine. scary story, Night's King, who had been the 13th man to lead the Night's Watch, which, haha, okay, George, we get it, 13. A warrior who knew no fear, and old Nan would say, that was the fault in him, for all men must know fear. And I thought that was that was really stood out to me, right? Because if Night's King doesn't know any fear that that's an important part of Bran's story because we're told right from the beginning of his entire storyline that when can yeah. a man be brave that is the only time a man can be brave when he is afraid what does that say then about Night's King he's someone who had no no bravery he wasn't gallant I know and Bran that's what we said earlier about repression never lets himself I mean we, we said that in context of grief but he also never lets himself be afraid. Yeah, he thinks about it. But he represses. And then he's like, yeah. no, I'm a Stark. I have to be brave or I have to not be afraid. I'm mm -hmm. a man grown now. I'm a man grown of seven. And you are not. <laughs> I'm Rob's heir. And I'm like, uh. True. True. You are the heir, but not a man grown. Mm -hmm. You are a small boy, and you are going to stay that way in my head until I get a goddamn book, so. Yeah. Uh, that's why George wanted his time skip. You know, He still wouldn't be a man grown after that, though. <laughs> no, no. Still still youngster. A teen. Tween. Unlikely king. Tween. Not yet a, a man, not yet a boy. Abateens. Wait, wrong song. Wrong song. You know what's funny? One day thing I just want to throw in is that before we dive, because obviously the Night's King is our monster of legend, is our big bad, but he's barely grazed in that chapter. He's the one he should be thinking about all the time, but we have a big, in that chapter, a big seven mentions of the Rat Cook, but he, re he will repeat in one mention the name multiple times, but only two mentions of the Night's King. It keeps it really mysterious. He keeps it mysterious because it hints at something, but I also think that I don't think that the main antagonist in this book or like in this story is going to be called the Night's King. And George even makes a point of calling out that a big difference between the show and his books. And I'm like, George, this is like literally an article in a possessive. 
right? In the show, the main antagonist on that magical level is called the Night King, whereas in the book, it's Night's King, not the Night's King. It's Night's King, and George seems to find that very important. Even though I'm like, seems like seems like uh, you're splitting hairs, but I think that speaks to us about like that the nature of our, you know, how the others started and all of that is different than the origins that we are told in the show. Like I think that there's there's more to it and more to a lot of it than that. I think that there's some truths in regards to the familial aspect, but I think we'll come back to that in a second. Yeah. That's why I deleted the in all of our notes. I don't know if you saw me doing the clean. You're like, what the fuck is Eliana doing? And I'm like, no, the. <laughs> but that's it. It's possessive, right? He belongs to the knight. Knight's king. It's the king that belongs. Not Darkstar. No, My God, it's not Darkstar, like, but... I don't know, like, belongs to the night. Yeah, we belong to the night, but that's literally it. And I'm serious, as we read this, because he belongs to the night, and when you think of kings, kings don't belong to anyone, right? What is the biggest part of all these kings where they're like, I am the king, I am the king, I own everything, but the knight owned this king, which speaks to his motives and what drove him, right? The knight drove him. He didn't have his own motives. He was driven by something else. So we have the passage that tells us about the knight's king that he fell due to a woman, which I think this comes, uh, this comes really well coming off of the last chapter, which is John cradling Egret as she dies, having broken his vows for Egret, a little on the nose. The knight's king falls due to a woman glimpsed from atop the wall they made out there once, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. He chased her, loved her, and gave her his seed as well as his soul. He proclaimed her queen at the night fort and bound his sworn brothers to his will through sorcery, ruling for thirteen years until the Stark of Winterfell and Joramin of the Free Folk joined them to free the Watch from bondage. He had been sacrificing to the others, and his name was destroyed and erased from history. I find this interesting in the context of John, not only with Egret in the last chapter, but of course, there may or may not, may or may not, be a relationship that he has with Daenerys, right? And he may or may not proclaim her his queen while he's in the north with her, right? When she comes north, if they meet eventually, I find that really interesting and just some great parallels for John's story, especially after he went through it chapter by chapter and caught some of those great, those great moments of like Rhaegar and Lyanna that seep through in his chapters accidentally, even though he doesn't know anything about them. You know, he was wrong to love her, wrong to leave her, right? And feels very Night's King in a way. Bunnies. And so we have a few versions of that same story, which are very similar. And as you were talking about a mission, mm. and I was talking about you know, the canon and the thing. And it's like those slight difference in wording that's always really exciting. In the version from the Citadel, I mean, from the World Book, so that's the Citadel, all of a sudden, the woman gleams from atop the wall, becomes a sorceress, has a court. Like, a, mm. I, and it was really like sorceress term who seduced him with her dark magic. Yeah, which like I, and I, I was like, of course, misogyny, and like, of course, masters were gonna go there. Yeah, I'm not even buying that because you could so see like the the little master being like, <laughs> oh yeah, she's just just a temptress, like oh who or that. Did you see woman? <laughs> She's such a sorceress. Yeah, and I think we'll see a lot of that to come in the books, right? There will be some of that from history, probably, especially since the Night's King is wiped from history for his egregious crimes. Whatever he did 
which we'll never know because it was that serious, apparently. There's those great lines in the John chapters about he was motherless, you know, orphaned, damned, all that good stuff. But also those lines about because of his betrayals to the Night's Watch, he knows and thinks that he will, he'll never be heard in history again. He's a betrayer, treasonous. I find that interesting to come to. It's also interesting, you know, not saying that, like, yeah, all the blame should be... The blame isn't, like, put on Night's King, and they don't call the, the woman... They call her, like, a corpse queen, but no capitalization, kind of, right? She's not the one to blame. It's the guy who succumbed to her, but at the same time, we haven't really seen much that shows us women others or something before, right? Mm. We're not shown that much. And then it also makes me think of something, like, in the next book of Aemon being like, I don't know, we never considered that it could be a princess. And then I also think of, like, could this this person, right, this other, be similar to, like, the, the Woods Witch from the Harlan and Herndon of House Tarly legends. And they, who would, every time they had intercourse with her, when the moon was full, they wouldn't age. That, that, that again, sounds like... And Macer's fever dream. Yeah. I mean, they do love their threesomes or something like that. It very much reminds me of the, you know, creationism and Adam and Eve and Eve being blamed for being the seductress, the temptress, but Adam also wanted the knowledge. He wanted the fruit. And that's knights, king, and queen. Yeah. But now in regards to what's erased, right? I'm kind of like, maybe she should have gotten a little more credit. Well, yeah, so it's his name that's erased from history. So I, I like that point, you know, because the rest of his tale is there. Like, so, so back to our whole, like, story thing. They didn't erase his tale at all. Like, everyone knows about that. Yeah, it's just true. his name. So that's like, that's like John's. So here we touch on one of John's fear, but which is also like a very human fear, especially male fear. Because the Cherokee, blah, 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 you know, that notion that history is a thing of great men with your name in the history book <laughs> and your your name, your name. John doesn't have a name. He's not a star. He's a snow. So it's name. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Th- that important because mm-hmm. everyone knows the story of the Night King. It's just, it's just his motherless. Yeah. Damned. Bastard. Damned. Again, but it, when you said that that story really doesn't sound like it's a one one person story. Like there was no name was erased because it was not a person with a name. It it doesn't ring like the thing of a person. It's uh, it sounds like either a cautionary tale, like we have the version in the world book, like the Macer's version. You know, they largely dismiss these tales. Though some alone there may have been Lord Commander who attempted to carve out a kingdom for himself in the earliest days of the Watch. So it's like, well, be careful, Lord Commanders. You cannot try to take power over the Watch or your name will be erased out of the history books. Cautionary tale. Or it could be something older, something more primal and be an expression of one of those evil forces, whether it is the the great other or another one, something else. Mm. Obviously, 
we know that that story doesn't really make any sense because it's both a story of the making of others, yet it happens after the long night. I mean, it's kind of a little bit tricky timeline-wise. I mean, it should have warned us that, first of all, when y'all thought they were gone, they were still there. <laughs> the others were still there. But what you're saying makes me think of something of this idea of names have power, right? Of uh, Even if it, a lot of the ways that we see it manifest is, is on a societal level, we see it manifest on a personal level. People draw power from their own names. They're like, I am a Stark of Winterfell, therefore I should be brave. Or I am a Lannister of Casterly Rock, so I... I should be able to be cunning, right? How people have that. And like, it's it's not just like a threat that your name will be erased. It, it, when you were saying that there's something primal about it, it almost feels like a fear thing, right? Like of a, you don't ever give out, who was it? Someone that we were talking to recently was talking about like the Fae, right? You don't give out your real name because once you give out your real name, someone can take control of you or something like that or can summon you yeah. and and is his name stamped out of the histories because because there is great power in it and they didn't want other people emulating it coming back to the old language again like you said earlier stamping out all traces of that magic so that others cannot abuse it against the country or however which they others please. <laughs> ah, exactly exactly the other people exactly. or we the other it. people <laughs> ah <laughs> there's another story that we get that actually kind of solves some almost solved something we were questioning about this Night's King, that Old Nan used to tell Bran he might have been a Bolton, a Magnar of Skagos, an Umber, a Flint, a Nori, or a Woodfoot, who ruled Bear Island before the Iron Men came. But she knew the truth. He was a Stark. Much creepier that way. The brother of the man who brought him down. Ooh, brother against brother. Will we see that? We shall see. Or cousin against cousin. Or brother so against we sister. Were... Yeah, bro. <laughs> So much stark civil war. Oh, I was thinking Just literally kidding. the dance, but, you know. Oh, yeah, the dance. So we were talking about who the hell had Mormont's Island, right? And I think this kind of sounds like the Woodfoots were wiped out by Iron Men. So the Iron Men might have been who, who arm wrestled. The Iron Men probably arm wrestled the Mormonts, which adds to their legendary feuding. Uh, and by feuding, I mean being raided and having all their shit fucked up by the Iron Men. So, interesting. Very interesting. Nan would always pinch Bran's nose and say, Mayhaps he was a Brandon Stark. Mayhaps he once slept in this very room. And I know she did that to fuck with him, but I'm like, yeah, mayhaps, dude. Absolutely yeah. mayhaps. Yeah. Seems true. For fucking real. You're yeah. a monster. Probably. Brandon Stark. Yeah. <laughs> Think of how many of those bones of the dreamers were Brandon Starks. Shit. But Bran doesn't like that notion at all, probably because it could be close to the truth. Who knows, Bran? I think there's something interesting here of him giving into that darkness a little, right? Like, right now he's rejecting it, but soon, as we keep going on, he's giving into it. Part of it is that temptation, right, to, to stand, I guess, next to Mira, right, is how it plays out in this. But also, as we see a lot in in this story in general, right, like, as we're reminded by John's story that love is the death of duty, or or sometimes I think we're seeing that perhaps love can lead us to duty. And I think we discussed that quite a bit in John's story as well and Ned's story because love helped Ned do the right thing in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, but 
in regards to love being the death of duty, we're already seeing it twice come up in the same chapter. For example, or or the the those familiar connections, Lord Wiswell bringing back his deserter son and being like, mm, I he should probably die for this," and then Lord Brandon and his mysterious brother and Knight's King, whether or not he was a Brandon or or not. Yeah. There's a lot of northern dynamics going on there. Family. As far as brothers and legends, yeah. Oh, and then Tyrion kills his dad at the end of this <laughs> book. <laughs> at the fun. end of this book. Exciting, exciting. Family's fun. Family's fun. Night's king was only a man by light of day, old Nan would say, but the night was his to rule. And it's getting dark. Actually, I think the night ruled him. We already talked about that. Moving on. I like to think of him going to clubs. <laughs> That's what it sounds okay, like. Him to and me. Dark Star Party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The night was his survival. Of the night. Uh, the reeds sleep in the kitchen where the rat cook baked. Drafty and cold, 12 feet across, stone steps circled down to water. They cannot see. It's bottomless. At least they're protected from the rain, thanks to the dome and the giant weirwood, although it's skinnier, as we said, than any brand has seen before, and faceless, but at least the gods were with them. Hodor shouts Hodor down the stone steps, hearing it echo until it fades to a whisper and tests throwing a big piece of slate in there as well. Bran scolds him, saying he may have woken something. They hear a gulp from the water when it finally lands. Ooh, I love that. Ooh, ooh, George, how dare you? It was so good. A gulp as the water swallows the slate. Whoop. Amazing. And there's a little bit of that uh, that black gate and white weirwood tree coloring going on that makes me think of the House of Black and White and Feast for Arya when she lands at her kind of magical threshold and passes through that door. And that tree, like, who's keeping watch of this night for it? Back to what Anne said. Is it the children of the forest? And what comes and goes within it? It can't just be rats. Or the children are in the rats also tending. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which gives credence to Cinderella, Joe Magician's oh. Laris Clubfoot theory. Oh, that's right, right. Yes, that too. Not Cinderella. Now that you say it, <laughs> not Cinderella, but it gives credence to Cinderella being canon. Hey, uh, Sansa loses her shoe soon. Yeah, and the uh, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the, the the tree coming up through the gate, but also that it's intertwining into the kitchen also makes me think of Ithaca. Mm. Just in, that, mm-hmm. That's it. But, you know, the Odyssey, Bran, the hero's journey, that's all. Yeah. It's all there. It's all there. But you know what's also there? Bran, and he does not want to stay there. But the reeds are determined. Hodor gathers firewood and Jojen lights a fire. Mira debones a fish while Bran ponders when the Last Supper had been in this kitchen. And he's like, at least it's not a meat pie. Ah, ah, a meat pie. Yum, yum. You know, because... <laughs> That's to come, for sure. Mm, I do like them. The rat cook had cooked the son of the Andal King in a big pie with onions, carrots, mushrooms, lots of pepper and salt, a rasher of bacon, a dark red Dornish wine. Then he served him to his father, who praised the taste and had a second slice. Afterwards, the gods transformed the cook into a monstrous white rat who could only eat his own young. He had roamed the night fort ever since, devouring his children, but still his hunger was not sated. It was not for murder that the gods cursed him, old Nan said, nor for serving the Andal King his son in a pie. A man has a right to vengeance, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive. 
Of course, the rat cook in this chapter is a great storytelling device post-Red Wedding to show you the phrase may or may not, mayhaps, will get comeuppance, right, for what they have done to the Starks. Uh, earlier, we had that line, the rat cooks children running from their father. And here, you also have that line about him eating his young. And we actually see that happen, right? Like, Walder Frey, in a way, is eating his well, young in that, yeah. he, you know, they're, they're like just dissolving between his hands. He's, he'll use them as any currency to get prestige, right? To continue having his pride and to make him look better. But soon, the rat cooks children do go running from their father. They begin to diverge from his original plans in pursuit of glory for themselves, right? Or literally, hashtag free pie. Yeah, and then literally, yes. Very literally. Yeah, I mean, George does love his foreshadowing. That's probably why that the rat cook is the most mentioned of the stories, even though he has nothing really to contribute, but he keeps on repeating his rat cook. It's because he was so, he loves his manderly. He was so excited about his little free pie moment that I know, even though he's a girl, he had that one already in the back of his head when he wrote that chapter. He knew he was going to get to it. Yeah. And just could not wait to plant these little seeds there for the readers. And you can really see it. Maybe that's why uh, Bran feels such a kinship to Lord Manderley. They're like, oh, we like the same stories. And Manderley's like, yeah, I really like that Radcook story. I've always wanted to try it myself. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Mayhaps. Mayhaps. But he makes sure not to. He's like, mm, it is a good story. And what if I didn't break guest rights? So I gave them some horses. Some parting yeah, Bitches gifts. love horses. And he's like, I'm free. Squeak, squeak. <laughs> squeak, squeak. Oh my god. So after Jojen suggests that they sleep, the moonlight pours in and it paints the weirwood branches like there's this fantastic imagery of they're trying to catch the moon and drag it into the well. It really stood out to me on this reread because you can't fucking put the moon in the well, idiot. <laughs> it's a metaphor, it's fine. Uh, a simile, I should say. But you can't put the moon in the well. The nature of the moon in totality is like the moon is not an object that you can command. Right, coming back to the idea of the knight owning the king. And I don't know, something about putting something so gigantic, pivotal, and important into a tiny well, but then it escaping. It reminds me of a lot of like a lot of creation mythos or like Pandora's box we mentioned earlier, right? Or like things escaping from behind a closed door. And I love how it relates to kind of that background imagery that's happening as the tension of this chapter kind of pumps up, right? Because Bran keeps hearing a scuffling noise when it's actually Sam, uh, but he hears the rats all around him and all this noise and sensory that's just freaking you out. I don't know, you know, I'm reaching about Bran, the werewolf, trying to do like the impossible to change the fabric of reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are some myths, and I don't think they have anything to do with this, but there are some myths where like the moon is reflected right in the water and then that it gets eaten gradually. And also, very interestingly, I have no idea why, but someone asked on Quora, can you eat the moon? And huh. someone gave like... Oh. Made a cheese. And someone goes, I don't think... Oh, oh, they meant actual literal moon dust, I think. Because someone goes, I don't think so. The main problem... Is erosion, or I don't know, is moon dust poisonous? Is another answer. Sediment. That has nothing to do with any of this. But um, Moon dust poisoning, holy shit. There are, there are, I think, myths where the moon's reflection, right, is in the water and can be consumed. So, very interesting. 
Bran prays to the old gods for a dreamless night, but they make no answer. He closes his eyes, but is awakened by a scuffling sound. He thinks it's trees and leaves rustling, but it's coming from inside, not outside, and it's getting louder. Someone is coming. It wasn't the sentinel, nor was it Mad Axe, and he wonders briefly if it's a thing came in the night. The apprentice boys all saw it, all nine said. But afterward, when they told their lord commander, every description had been different. And three died within the year, and the fourth went mad. And a hundred years later, when the thing had come again, the apprentice boys were seen shambling along behind it, all in chains. That was only a story, though. He was just carrying himself. There was no thing that comes in the night, Master Lewin had said so. And so Bran thinks, if there were, it was gone, like dragons and giants. Ha! Ha ha ha! So funny. They're so gone. Yeah. <sighs> Uh, but now, the sound, as mentioned, the sound is coming up the wall, coming up the well, as well as a new sound, <laughs> a thin, whimpering hey. sound like someone in pain and muffled breathing, but the loudest are the footsteps. He thinks about reaching summer, but doesn't want to abandon his friends here on the physical plane, even though he told them so about this awful, horrid place. He's too frightened to shout. The fire's gone out, everyone's asleep. This is kind of similar to, like, white attacks, right? Feels mm. like when John had a big, had small Paul, for example, with the John in the beginning. Hearing this description, like, again, though, makes me just feel so bad for Sam. I'm like, oh god, he went, he had to do that with Sears multiple times. And you know, we heard how long, you know, the, the echo of Odor's shout earlier, like, how long, we can imagine how long those stairs are. I know. Uh, Sam, a real one. So Bran is afraid to be here at night for at the night for it, right? Because it's full of ghosts, and it makes me think a little bit about you know you're talking about people repressing their memories before, and and it's different from Ned or Jenny. I think Ned was very consumed with his ghosts in many ways. That was part of his problem. Or Jenny, who loves to dance with her ghosts and can't leave the past behind and so you have this balance of of you know people who are being af who are afraid to confront the past versus living too long in it and bran bran doesn't like to think of those ghosts right he's not thinking about rob or catlin or gray wind he wants to leave this place you see a little bit of kind of uh and i mean it's a kid thing too right obviously a lot of this is not just being absolutely traumatized but also being a child Absolutely traumatized child. And he remembers Sansa once telling him the demons of the dark can't touch him if he hides in his blanket. Aw, what a good sister. And thinks about doing that now. That is his first thought. But he's a prince and almost a man grown, as Anne has said, almost 27 years old. And he drags himself to wake Mira, pressing his finger to his mouth. And she immediately wakes, hearing the noises and jumps into action to grab her weapon, slipping toward the well, quiet as a cat. As a child, it tries to, again, repress, repress, repress. Like, as Sansa recommended, that's Sansa's modus operandi. Like, believe in your dreams, pretend reality doesn't exist. Bran, and so Bran does that, he's 
by one of these parental figures, his older sister, thought that. But like one of his impulse is that as soon as he discovers that weird things are happening to him, he's going to try to see if he can like rewrite history. I, I type, you know, I just type his story. Again, like back to what I was discussing yeah. earlier. Again, there was that very early on that scene where he wants to go in the crib to see if his dad is there because of his dreams. But as in A Dance with Dragons, his first impulse as soon as he connects with the werewolf net is to try to talk to his dad. And Blood Raven's like, oh, no, you can't. You can't change the past. But we know, we know he's going to do it. Bran is the author also. Like, there's that he wants to change things and what can happen once he tries to do that. Are you going to create worse demons by trying to raise, like, you know, you're, oh, I'm afraid of that thing. I'm going to raise it. But aren't you going to create potentially, like, mm. something worse? Right. By not embracing your history and learning your yes. history and knowing your history, it's bound to happen all over again, right? By erasing it and shoving it away, you're causing the problem. You're creating the monster. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And Eliana brought this up last week, too. And we know there is a quote unquote somewhat canon moment coming in Bran's story for here, what's coming right after this for Hodor, hmm. right? And while Bran is busy trying to rewrite his story, and we see him in the Weirwood in the next book, learning a little bit about the Starks through the Weirwood and through other people through the Weirwood. Uh, but as he sees these things and he gets the desire to be able to rewrite his story and change his own history and history around him, we see who it will affect. It will hurt others in the process. And I love the idea of Blood Raven telling him, no, you can't do this. And Brands the Winds of Winter arc being him going, what the fuck? Yes, I can. And him doing it and then the consequences that follow that, right? There are going to be huge consequences to pay. Turns out, you know, he can't rewrite it because the ink is dry, right? If if Hodor's already mm -hmm. like this, that means he, he has already he it. done it. And it speaks to a little bit of like, there's a couple of things that makes me think of, you were talking earlier about autonomy and, and, and Bran's story and how Jojen feeling that the, pat, the the future, like what he can see has kind of already sort of boxed them in and Bran and Mira wanting to fight desperately against that and, and Melisandre, anyone who sees the prophecies, feeling that they should have some sort of power, if not over their own lives, over at least what they can do. And I think that we can't rewrite the past. But there is a story that you can rewrite, and it is what you do going forward. And I think that's why Jamie plays such a big role in Bran's storyline. It's why he's repressed Jamie, and why, you know, if they ever cross paths again, we see that Bran very well might show forgiveness to Theon, and perhaps he might to Jamie, who is, is in a place where he's. He is trying to rewrite his story, but he accepts the things that he's done in the past. When he writes down what happened to him in the White Book, he's like, oh, I'm just going to tell it like it is. I was a big loser. Um, he doesn't sugarcoat it, and he's trying to rewrite his story in terms of who he becomes. And you can do that, because otherwise, if you don't rewrite your story, you let things happen to you, which is what happens with Ned, which is what happens with Tyrion. Right? They let the things that are in their past 
continue to control them. And again, there's a balance to that too, because you're saying you'd have to know your past to know what happens in the future, right? Like Daenerys is, is, is part of her repression. If I look back, I am lost. She can't stay too far back there because it is deeply painful, the things that have happened to her. He could write whatever he chose, henceforth, whatever he chose. I think that's a really pivotal and important part, especially for Jamie's arc coming from him throwing Bran out of a fucking window. Well, he just yeah. eating Bran out of the window uh, and Bran to he's not very much, you know, Jamie's at least living in his truth, right? Like, good for you, Jamie. Live your truth. Yeah, you are an asshole. Go you. But Bran is like, no, I can change it right in, in dance. So with feast and dance lining up, you have Jamie going through that awakening and Bran falling deeper into that darkness of it first. He's not ready to come out of that yet fascinating yeah because wanting to change the past and rewrite the stories like last last episode right we're told about what happened in the past with uh the turn at heron hall and brand's like i don't think it should have ended like that right then and there he's showing a desire to rewrite these mm. stories to how he thinks they should end, rewrite the past and that's a childish thing to want and that makes sense because he is a child it's mm -hmm. it's it's a childish thing to want to do that and it's a very human thing to want yeah. to to want things to have gone differently but at the same time i think part of adulthood is learning to accept this thing happened and here's what i can do moving forward well said also in a yes i agree with you but also in a meta sense bran is a character in the story and he didn't do anything George make things happen to him. That's true. You know, George is going to true. rewrite his story. I know. I mean, I'm not. George, I'm not I red George killing. George. You know, I'm not red killing Bran, but there's some. It's also not Bran's fault, right? Because it's George's fault. Is what Anne's saying yeah. that Bran's perfect? No, well, I'm absolutely not saying that. George has. <laughs> George did rewrite oh, the story. We know George keeps throwing shit out and rewriting it. Oh, George. Yes. That's also true. That is very true. But no, Bran is very flawed. I love I love my flawed baby so much. That's my son. I know he's my son, he's so flawed. I mean I know he's a kid, but he's yeah. He's you know. Kids are messed up. Being a kid was hard I mean, because kids are messed up. That's what happens when this is your family now. <laughs> Sometimes a family really is the reeds and Hodor, mm -hmm. you know? In summer, in a dog. What the fuck? In this summer, is dog yeah. erasure. Two homeschool kids and a dog. And and a man. Now you're erasing Hodor. God. Chloe, come on. God! <laughs> Better than Bran. He's gonna straight up wish he did. Fucker. Little shit. <laughs> he's grounded. You know what? Bran's gonna be grounded in the winds of winter. So in you're my saying opinion. he's not gonna, gonna to... fly? I'm saying that Anne and I are gonna have to discipline our son, probably. And it's gonna be a, a crazy thing. Poor Bran. He's fired. Bran was watching her all the while, and even he could barely see the faint sheen of her spear. I can't let her fight the thing alone, he thought. Summer was far away, but he slipped his skin and searched for Hodor. It was not like sliding into Summer. That was so easy now that Bran hardly thought about it. This was harder, like trying to pull a left boot on your right foot. It fit all wrong, and the boot was scared too. The boot didn't know what was happening. The boot was pushing the foot away. He tasted vomit in the back of Hodor's throat and that was almost enough to make him flee. Instead, he squirmed and shoved, sat up, gathered his legs under him, his huge, strong legs, and rose. I'm standing. Confession time. First time reader, and because 
I'm in love with Bran. I'm reading a kid's POV. Like, before I read Varamir, I did not realize the horror of the situation. And I think, you know, George is kind of genius doing that. Like, no, I cannot read that chapter without, like, feeling the horror in my throat. But first read? Like, I did not, because I see through his eyes, I'm in his brain. And I think that makes mm-hmm. it so complicated and interesting. The horror, the deep horror, did not strike me until I see through Baramir's eye first, and then I go back to the chapter. And I think it's very problematic, but also very interesting. It's well done in that way. I think it's supposed to make you feel that way at first. Like, it's supposed to have that kid kind of vibe of like, yo, this is so cool. He's skin changing. Oh, man, he can do this. Like, you know, think about like Transformers, right? Literally Transformers. Like, that's the kind of thing, like, our Animorphs, as a kid, you think it's so cool, but then you realize what it means. Absolutely. It's all of what you've said here, and I, I kind of wonder, you know, the things that will motivate him to do this more, right? And we, we see part of it in dance, but also here he feels like he has to, to help or shield or protect Mira, and so he feels like that gives him an excuse to, to slip into Hodor's skin at that time. It's like, well, couldn't you have asked? But at the same time, it, as you said, right? Like, that's, that's the point. The horror. That's one thing that's really problematic in the book is that, like, the lack of victim's POV. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's like it's supposed to get us to practice our empathy because we see a lot of things through the eyes of the perpetrators. I mean, I think I think that's the thing, right? Like, Bran is a perpetrator, but he is also a victim, right? And it's it's that... Even with Cersei, right? Like, Cersei, she does bad things, but she's also been harmed. It's the idea that just because you have been harmed or a victim doesn't mean that you can't also hurt someone else or wield your power against someone else. Definitely, and I think that's what makes it interesting. Because, yes, you you have to exercise your empathy, and you have to feel... That's what's tough, is you're watching something monstrous through the eyes of the person who's doing the monstrous things, thus everyone's being the hero of their own story. A few Mm, of them are going to be like, yo, I'm doing a horrible thing. I'm so proud of myself. No, that's not the human (laughs) mind. Yeah. (laughs) The last thing I'll contribute to it too is there's something about his relationship with Mira. And I know as we get into dance, there's more, right? He starts to think about you know, her a little differently and think about even possibly what it would feel like to skin change into her and what her emotions and feelings would be compared to Hodor. Not normal thoughts, right, for your nine-year-old son to have. Again, really should have done some better parenting on my part. I'm sorry. (laughs) As far as Mira goes, too, there's something interesting about his story with her of, like, he wants to love her, wants to be with her in a way, in a very child-first love kind of way. And I think that being the driver in this moment that he's like, oh no, Mira can't fight alone. I have to help. And he immediately tries to reach out to Hodor again. I think Mira is a great weakness for him in a way, and maybe something that he will have to give up later on in the story, right? Like of loving her in that manner or that feeling for her, for her safety, even. Oh, 1%. Because that's the thing. With great powers come great responsibilities. But the thing is that, he does not realize he has great powers and no one explained the responsibilities to him. He's only, he only has like, Ned did his best, but there was never... He died. Yeah, yeah he died. Really early. He, di- like... he died. And then Bran was the baby, one of the babies. Because what he said, like, 
actually, I would tend to disagree to the first part of your statement, Chloe. I think it's a very natural thing for a nine-year-old to think, for a kid to think, what would it be like to be in that, like, literally, that person's skin, in that person's brain? Except that kids would fantasize about that. No kid has the freaking power to literally skin change. It's natural, like, you know, it's like that mirror face for little kids, you know, like, understand, yeah, that's exactly, like, child psychology except that they do not have supernatural power to do it and that's where it's dangerous because he has no idea of the boundaries of his power it's like it does a thing it happens oh my god that's so traumatizing you know also imagine if like you're a child and any of your fantasy just became reality it's almost kind of a good thing too like to want to imagine what other people feel and their perspective but it's just the horror, it's turned on its head, right? As George likes to do. But like, that's true. I do sometimes wonder, even now into adulthood, I'm like, what would it be like to be this person to feel and think the things that they feel? And, but not in a literal sense, because thankfully I do not have great power and great responsibility in that way. Yeah, it's a step too far, right? It takes it one step too far, uh, maybe. And, and, another step. And then another step. And, and then, then he, another step, because, because wait, there's someone else taking another step what? here soon, too. Yeah, there's a lot of other steps being taken, but this is total body horror, right? Like, this one's great because he sees himself on the floor, and he mm. grabs Hodor's longsword. I mean, this is very, like, had to have felt bulky for the first time and very weird being in this skin in this manner again, but, like, for longer and with more cognition. So, suddenly, from the well comes the source of the noise, another person taking another step, another step, uh, a whale and a black shape heaves itself toward the moonlight, and it's Sam Tarly. Bran so finds rude. himself on the floor, kicked out of Hodor's body, Hodor's shouting, just like he had at the lake when the lightning was flashing, but the shape is screaming too. So, <laughs> Mira is standing over him with her spear, demanding to know who he is, and Sam Tarly is sobbing. He's like, I've been... St- Dabbed! He's so Sam. dramatic. Flailing around. Yeah, absolutely. Flailing in Mira's net while Hodor shouts, Hodor, 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 a crazy scene. I know. It's Sam's appearance. And like, again, like we were like, oh, Sam. His appearance and all the chaos. It's like the stark contrast of that comedic relief at that moment, right after mm-hmm. the abuse scene. He's also like, he's hard on first read to wrap your head around yeah it's not something that like you think about the horror of it till after you come back around to it after you've seen like what brand's been doing with hodor but yeah it is nice i'm glad sam is here because we love sam oh we love sam <laughs> that's it i'm just glad he's here <laughs> it's a good thing that happens in the in the night fort we have a line then there was light and Bran saw the pale, thin-faced girl by the lip of the well, all bundled in furs and skins beneath an enormous black cloak, trying to shush the screaming baby in her arms. Going back to your Be Our Guest Right episode there, uh, I love that. The lip of the well, right? Personifying mm. more parts of this castle, turning it into a, a human part. Ooh. A black brother of the Night's Watch stands before them and calls himself a crow, but not that crow. Only Sam, Samuel Tarley, a steward that took care of the ravens. Gilly introduces herself as well, and the baby stops crying. She says they come from Craster's Keep, and they're puzzled and ask if they're the one. 
that Cold Hands told them to find. It's funny. Gilly is the voice of reason. She's the only one who's making sense right now. She's just like, there's a baby. We're clearly not going to attack you. Baby. Everyone's yelling and Gilly's like, that's who we are. That's my name. That's his name. That's why we're here. Who are you? Yeah, we're good now. Yeah, we all good. <laughs> Not that anyone knows who Crasser is. We're like, uh, okay, is that supposed to mean Whatever something the fuck to that me? Is. <laughs> oh, he knows the Sentinels, but he doesn't know Craster. God. Mira tells him to lift his rump so she can get her net back. She's like, "Stop breaking my net, stranger." And Jojen begins to question how they got through the wall. Sam explains that there is a gate. The Black Gate. Hidden. Apparently only able to be found and used by a sworn brother. At least that's what Coldhand said, which is also which is also not his real name. Gilly and Sam just call him that. Also, he brought him here on his elk. And speaking of like comedic moments, this was hilarious in the book. They're like, wait, an elk? An elk? An elk? Hodor is apparently how the whole scene goes. This is Hodor's most uh, spoken. This is the one that has the most Hodor in it. The most oh, spoken that's right. Hodor we were lines. Talking about that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brand's like, wait, does that guy have antlers? And he's like, the Green Men would ride on elks. And Old Nan used to say, but Cold Hands just wears black. Also, he's super pale, but he's like as pale as a white. But also, he's not a white. And he had a further mission to complete, accompanying Brand and his team. I love cold hands showing up and i love that kind of mystery it makes me think a little more to what Anne said about the children being in the night fort too now you have a green man maybe he's not really one of the green men but you could have had a green man riding on through interesting and there's also something here kind of about how an oath is important right the night's watch oath turns out to be very important to this chapter for them to gain passage a vow, a spoken vow that has proven to be so powerful to open up this gate that won't open for anyone else that hasn't taken that oath. And then, of course, we have something else very important, which is oath-breaking, which it turns out is the theme of this end of the book, right? When it comes to Rob and the phrase, who all break various oaths to one another, there's something, something kind of serious about this gate only opening for that important pledge from the Night's Watchmen. Uh, it comes back to what we were kind of talking about earlier, right, with John's vows and whether they excuse him or not, and the yeah. vows being more than just the vows, being more important than life and death, being something more ancient, maybe even some sort of spell themselves. That's our character arc here at Girls Gone Canon. Us being like, I mean, yeah, the phrase were bad for what they did and for breaking guests, right? But us also being like, Rob, you took a sacred vow and you were really wrong for that. You were really wrong for breaking that. Yeah, you shouldn't have followed your dick on that one. The phrase gave up so much. That's that's us now. I mean, he was grieving. He was grieving. You know, if we're going to forgive Bran for his time grieving, Rob the boy was also Rob grieving. Hit it and quit it. <laughs> hit it and quit it. <laughs> hit it and quit life, baby. And tell us your cold hand theory, because I feel like you have something good on this. I like metal theories. So it's a theory I'm pulling out of my ass. I have no proof. I have no quote. I think cold hand is a white, I mean, Night's Watch man who died a while ago. And that is skin change is inhabited by the spirit of future brand. 
that Bran is guiding himself through cold hands. Oh. Past yeah, Bran. It does future, feel that way. That'd be great. Future Bran is guiding past Bran. Mm. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Backtracking to fill the holes so that Bran completes his own mission. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, I it mean, feels that way. I know there are weird, like, time loop theories, but I don't think George would be... That's so interesting. I never thought about this. Yeah, huh. it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if what you're saying is true, because, uh, you know, some of, I think, George's inspirations, like Robert Heinlein and stuff, play with ideas of that, of people looking different and meeting their their past selves and helping them and, and interacting with them. That's going to be wild if that's true. It's, it's some, <laughs> like, the it's reveal on that's going to be crazy. It's some Futurama shit. Well, if it is true, it makes you think about how there's that threefold reveal structure he likes to do, right? So you have Hodor... You have cold hands and then something else maybe that the the uh, why do you think I came all this way moment oh of the God. story, one could say. Leave me alone. But Okay, I will. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. No, I think I think there's there's a lot of validity to what you said. Yeah, and that's that's a good one. I gotta think about that some more. You gave me a big something to think on, thank you. I'm gonna sh- send you a short story, Chloe, and you'll see you'll see what I'm saying about what Anne is saying. It's called Robert okay. Highland's short story, All You Zombies. So Sam turns to Jojen, telling him they should go, asking if they have warmer clothes and that they're definitely not prepared for the cold beyond the wall nor at the Black Gate. Cold hands hadn't been able to come through the wall because the wall was magic, woven with old spells that stopped him from passing. We have a line of beyond the gates, the monsters live and the giants and the ghouls. He remembered old Nan saying, but they cannot pass so long as the walls stand strong. So go to sleep, my little Brandon. One of you should have said this, my baby boy. You needn't fear. There are no monsters here. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Mm, I love that. I had to include that. It just is like so scary story nightmare you know nighttime story kind of vibes it's perfect and old nan as like the accidental narrator in this entire chapter is really great to me right because she's the one that gave him all these stories so all of these stories are coming from her you could almost split it up in your head and imagine her telling each story while this is happening in the foreground oh yes really neat jojen puts together that bran is who sam is looking for nicely done jojen very apt the one. And Sam pieces together, wait, Bran is John's brother, the one who fell. Jojen insists, no, 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 that guy died. And Bran begs Sam, please don't tell anyone. He promises that he can keep a secret. Gilly, too. Sam tells them John was his brother, too, but he never came back from scouting the frost fangs. <laughs> and Bran's able to at least give him good news, but I love, I, I don't know, I love that. I love that Sam is like, John was my brother too, and I'm like, he was. He's alive. I mean, yeah. I don't know why I'm feeling. No, it's for, but- now. for now. He's actually dead, but. Oh no, Chloe! Oh, I mean, he oh, is. I mean, I, I, right now, he's been dead for a very long time, and it's we've been discussing how long years. it's been. Eleven it's a long to twelve. Time to be dead. He's not really sad. Uh, plus, I don't like John Snow. Right now, I'm feeling for Sam. I'm not feeling for John. <laughs> but, feeling for Sam. Yeah, like you know, I mean. It's not even a question. Sam loves John more than Brian yes. loves John. It's clear, like the amount of time well, when. I mean, maybe. No, yeah. it's, it's maybe. Yeah, we can debate that, but I agree. This is that. a Game of Thrones erasure, but okay, sure. <laughs> Book one erasure. Book one, Bran. He loves John. Like 
Arya adores John. Rob is really close to John because of their age. I'm not saying Brad is not Sansa was mixed feeling about John. He likes John, but Sam adores John. So I'm saying Sam loves John more than Bran loves John. Sam pulled a Shonda Rhimes' scandal for John. That's, that's true. That's love. That's true. Bran says, good news, John's alive. Bad news, we saw him with free folk through summer. And abruptly enters the room, proving to Sam that Bran is who he says he is. And Bran makes up his mind. He's like, all right. We're going to go with Sam. Gilly can just, I guess, stay here by the fire. And she looks around the night fort in wonder, never knowing that a castle would be so big. And Bran wonders what she'll think if she ever sees Winterfell. This is, you know, pretty fucked up because just moments before in the end of Jon's chapter, because I'm feeling violent today, you have Egret dying yeah. asking if this is a proper castle, not just a tower. And he said that she'd see a hundred castles. He promised her. Oh, you fucking liar. God. Gilly does see quite a few castles. Also, she doesn't grow up with these stories, right? Which is interesting. She looks at the Night Fort with wonder as this magical place that has promised safety for her and her son. Because she doesn't have all these preconceptions about it that Bran brings to it. She's already lived in one of the worst places. That is true. She's very brave. That is true. She's like, could it be worse than Craster's? She's like, I've literally know. seen the Did others I'm... also. Yeah. So it's interesting because those stories are there to protect the self, the wall, from whatever lies beyond the wall. If you're beyond the wall, mm -hmm. you're already in deep shit. So they're really meant to protect you from whatever is beyond the wall. That's the purpose mm, of those stories. Yeah. yeah. By the time they're ready to go, Gilly sat nursing her babe by the fire. You'll come back for me, she said to Sam. As soon as I can, he promised, then we'll go somewhere warm. When he heard that, part of Bram wondered what he was doing. Will I ever go someplace warm again? I don't know. Rip, you know, Gilly and Sam do go someplace warm. And when they do, Eamon dies because of it. <laughs> uh, and also, Gilly loses her baby because of that, too, when they go someplace warm. <laughs> but wow, maybe you're violent today, maybe, too. Maybe that baby will go some someplace even warmer, like Melisandre's fires. Oh, no! Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ma'am! 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 I need you to step off the podcast, ma'am. I'm gonna need you to step off the podcast and show me some license and registration. <laughs> what the fuck? Jesus. That's true, though. The cold does preserve, so I think maybe you're, you're uh, what you said earlier, Eliana, of, you know, the couple truths and a lie thing going on, right? Of, like, yes, we're in a very horrible, horrifying place, but some good things are happening, and, like, yes, it's cold, and there's bad things like zombies, but the cold still does preserve, as we see for poor Eamon. And as far as Bran is concerned, he's gonna go in a place beyond time and place. So... He can go literally wherever he wants. He can go probably, I mean, I don't know if the magic of the children of the forest touches the, the fires of Valeria, but mm -hmm. possibly. He might get to see them. And we know the weird net. Yeah, we know the weird net in a way extends to Essos. Yeah, one day I think that's going to come back into play for sure. Just like that vision or in I Game hope. of Thrones, right? when he looks from all the way to the land of winter, but also sees a shy by the shadow and sees all these other places. Maybe we'll get a deeper exploration from some of the warmer ones from Bran. That will be our only possible POV. Yeah. Mm, true, true. Sam reluctantly leads the way, 
and the sound of water begins to grow louder. He tells them their eyes will adjust, keep a hand on the wall, and before we head down to the well, down to the gate, Eliana. Yeah, again, I just want to, I, I just feel like Sam deserves props. Like, it sounded like it was really difficult for him to come up just now. All right. He was like heaving and they were like, oh, my God, what is that horrible sound? It's Sam coming up the steps. And so for him to take them all all the way back down there, going downstairs is not great on your knees either. All right. All the way down. And then he has to come all the way back and come all the way back up. I'm just saying that is very underappreciated of Sam to have done. Yeah, it's you know what? During this very That's podcast all. that we've recorded, I've gone up yeah. and down my stairs twice and it was not fun and i couldn't breathe you have a lot of and sam probably has more yeah he probably has more Mm -hmm. and not very comfortable stairs not that mine are comfortable either Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. very underappreciated yeah actually your stairs are treacherous literally literally treacherous i have broken my body against these chloe's life they have threatened the very podcast your cats love them though yeah yeah those fuckers love the stairs they have no issues with the stairs sometimes in the very dark i will like see Jaharis, my cat, run all the way down them super fast and all the way up super fast, like lightning speed, and just zoom around them. Like, what's wrong with you? You're insane. Hodor. Hodor whispered. Hodor, 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 Hodor. The well whispered back. The water sounds were close, but when Bran peered down, he saw only blackness. A turn or two later, Sam stopped suddenly. He was a quarter of the way around the well from Bran and Hodor and six feet farther down, yet Bran could barely see him. He could see the door though, the black gate, Sam had called it, but it wasn't black at all. It was white weirwood and there was a face on it. A glow came from the wood, like milk and moonlight so faint it scarcely seemed to touch anything beyond the door itself. And even Sam standing right before it, the face was old and pale, wrinkled and shrunken. It looks dead. Its mouth was closed and its eyes, its cheeks were sunken, its brow withered, its chin sagging. If a man could live for a thousand years and never die, but just grow older, his face might come to look like that. The door opened its eyes. They were white too and blind. Who are you? The door asked, and the well whispered, I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold. The light that brings the dawn. The horn that wakes the sleepers. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. Then pass, the door said. Its lips opened wide and wider and wider still until nothing at all remained but a great gaping mouth and a ring of wrinkles. Sam stepped aside and waved Jojen through ahead of him. Summer followed, sniffing as he went, and then it was Bran's turn. Hodor ducked, but not low enough. The door's upper lip brushed softly against the top of Bran's head, and a drop of water fell on him and ran slowly down his nose. It was strangely warm and salty as a tear. Gross. Disgusting. Really? It's kind of gross. Yeah, it's weird and interesting because like the weirwood is seeped into the place, right? Its its roots are throughout it. And this door seems to be made of weirwood. Again, coming back to the House of Black and White in the next book, it, it reminds me a lot of that half of the door, the weirwood bone part of the door. That language of a thousand years and never die. 
I never thought about it that way, but I'm like, Blood Raven, have you been controlling this gate? And does that mean that this gate really is that portal to another world? In fantasy terms, this is like the moment you pass to the next world, and in the hero's journey, this is crossing that first threshold to go seek your supernatural aid to Blood Raven, to all of the magic. And yeah, there's, there's something really poetic about the Night's Watch, right? And taking those vows in front of the heart tree for Sam and John, even if they didn't, like Sam didn't necessarily believe in those gods, but he said, no, you're right, I'll come with you. Why not? You know, these gods could be as good as any of the other ones. And the protection that the old gods have for the watch and for the spells put on this door. I know some think the tear could be just, you know, it could just be some sort of saliva. It could be blood. People have thought about, which I don't, I don't know if it is. Probably I've tasted silly blood. Thought. It doesn't taste like that. I've stressed this yeah, many times throughout the podcast. Yeah, I hate the taste of blood. Yeah, it's coppery. This is described as salty, like saline, right? Or like a tear. And maybe this is silly, but I started thinking about, you know, like salt circles and the protection of salt and using salt to protect and how it comes from the belief that spirits have a fascination with counting. So if you strew salt, rice, or beads, or powers, it means the demon or fae, like you brought up some of that commonwealth earlier, Eliana, with the fae, it will stop them, make them count, and follow the trail away from the home. So it's interesting that this could be a tear full of salt leaking down. Maybe that salt is magical and protective, right? A magic circle of demons would only follow around the edge infinitely. You've probably seen Supernatural or other movies, or maybe you are into some of these kind of practices or into some of the pagan kind of traditions, but I found that very interesting. It's why incantation bowls were designed the way they kind of were, to have salt be able to, to protect, to preserve, if you will. And then I think it's interesting that you call it a blessing, right? And if it's on his head, anointing him, almost like a baptism, but also like if its upper lip touches him, like a kiss, a kiss of protection, a kiss of life. Mm. But also... Bless him with salt, orb or lore's kiss. Gross. <laughs> It is gross. I think it's so interesting that the Rainforest Cafe mouth is like the portal. <laughs> because, so we have in this chapter a reminder that Summer regained his strength by feasting on the leftover like free folk bodies, right? And we're told that amongst the taboo, I think that that is one of the taboo, right? Like you should not eat human flesh while skin changed. And Brand isn't skin changed, I think, at that time when, when mm. Summer is eating the bodies. But at the same time, cannibalism in and of itself is a taboo. For their culture, for many cultures in the real world, there are multiple reasons. We've discussed it before. Prions, diseases. But Brand breaks a lot of these taboos. Like just, just skin changing Hodor in and of itself, that's breaking one of the taboo of skin changing. And it comes back to this idea of consumption and consuming flesh and like what becomes a part of you and skin changing is about that right as you become very literally one another in that way and so i think there's something that speaks to all of that as the gate's mouth consumes you as you go through it from one side to the other that passage it plays together with the door asking who you are, right? The vows and Sam answers of who he is. It's all like in this language of metaphor, but I am the horn, I am the shield. And to an extent, though, it is kind of a loss of identity. He doesn't answer, I am Samuel Tarly, but who being a deterrent, you can't answer with your name. 
Arya's story is a lot about that, about losing who she is, and maybe the others are part about that too, as you act and take the bodies of several people, right? And being all those people, kind of like, you know, the Grishka, or, or again, a skin changer, taking the bodies of the living. Are you just yourself, or are you also the people whose lives you literally touch, whose lives you consume? Sacrifice, trading part of yourself for magic, right? Or giving part of yourself you probably won't ever be able to gain back in order to obtain something for equivalent exchange, mm, right? Like, he has to give something of himself as he leaves this world. Right, again, losing your it's name. very interesting. I love that you compare it to the Grishka. Yeah, losing your name. No one, as you said with Arya. I mean, she does get magic out of that. That is true. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then the journey back to find yourself again and find your name, and also kind of what Anne was saying with rewriting his own story, making your name again, creating mm. your name. Right. Think of all those different brand, the builder, Brandon, the ship burner, Brandon, the ship, right? All these names. What Brandon will he become? That's in his control. And it's going to be for him to find out over the next two books when we get them someday. All those taboos that we are told about and that brand transgresses. And I don't know why it made me think in a way of the Storks of Winterfell, who managed to rule over all of the North and... You know, we're told that from the world book. We don't really know how. You know, we're never really told how. And it, it seems like they conquer those families who are all have something, like, deeply magical in nature and, like, should on paper, like, be stronger. Again, like, the Barrow Kings. There's the War Kings. Uh, I forgot exactly. How they, the Skin Changer. And then the last one, the Boltons. So they're named the Boltons, but it's the one who flay their enemies. They seem to be tied maybe to the practice of putting the entrail and the corpse on the, maybe possibly on the werewolves mm. for sacrifice, possibly tied to that. So it's like the, and I know it's, it's been, it's way before those practices disappeared from the North because the, the, the stars have ruled over the North for a very long time. But it's like the more the North the stars have ruled, the more of that, like, barbaric, I'm sorry to use that term, but like, but also very primal culture of the North has been abandoned. And then those things became taboos and like codified as such. And that's great because coming back to, to some of Eliana's thoughts, which she thinks about cannibalism a lot. Eliana, I think there, there's something interesting about, you know, sacrifice and some of those inherent kind of taboo things were, like you're saying, very much once part of the North in a time, too, where these magical spells were probably being cast. That was something much more tolerated in the North of their culture and something that was not looked down upon as much. It's still is it's Kagos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A different time. It depends, because, <laughs> you know, unquote. guest right is still very is still very important to the first men, right? The rat cook yes. and, and the cannibalism. That's probably a, a story from first men culture. Incest is something that is also taboo in Westeros that um, I think that probably the first men hold very much as well, which is why you steal someone from another tribe that prevents like the threat of incest coming up, right? And that's something that I think uh, might have existed in other cultures as well. So... Some of those like were there, but as you said, Anne, right, as they become a much more formalized culture, it kind of embrace more of some of the Andalusi way of doing things, like it, it, it becomes a bigger part of the culture. And then also like 
it's interesting because I feel like the stigma of being a skin changer is bigger amongst the first men and the free folk as opposed to those south of the wall. But part of that is because uh, they don't see very many skin changers because there's not as many of them. But there's kind of more of a revulsion towards them amongst the free folk. So I thought that was interesting. They are not looked at as normal. Yeah. They're looked at as kind of i mean some of them monsters? are respected and revered they're but kind of looked monsters. At as monsters yeah they're looked at yeah. as monsters but also a, a danger they're a real danger because yeah. they exist i mean they do seem pretty dangerous when you look at people like Veramir. some of them are like chill normal people like oral right what he he yeah. was a pretty chill normal dude he was. who he was really just looking out for egret too yeah he was kind of right to hate john snow sorry john but i mean you were kind of you know I mean, he was kind of right to distrust him. <laughs> yeah, he was not wrong. Not wrong. Not to disparage someone that I've come to love. It took a long time, but, you know, Jon Snow. But yeah, he was kind of being a little shithead. You know, infiltrating, lying about his motives. Yeah. Half lying. Half of it was a lie, but needless to say. And then they have their own taboo within their society, too. Because yes. they have a little subculture there's something in crusader kings in a game of thrones mod that i really like about this to close out my thoughts on the episode uh that i really like is like there are ranks and guilds so when you have a northern lord if you kind of breed in the warg trade or the skin changer trade there is a skin changer guild and you can kind of join that and there are ranks so interesting thinking about you know bran uh, Bran and Jojen are somewhat tangentially connected. They don't have the same powers. Bran obviously has a lot more power that he is not yet harnessed fully. And Jojen has kind of come to harness what power he has and understanding. But coming back to Bran and Jojen's relationship, like Jojen is not alpha to Bran. They're on a little bit of a different plane, but they're in the same world of having these powers, right? So some of that probably comes into play in a very primal naturistic way of what you can see, how you can see it, and what other people can see, and those kind of rakes between skin changers. It's interesting to think about a whole world of its own. Well, that's it, y'all. We reached the end of the world. That's the whole world on its own. We reached the end of the world, and then we crossed it, and like, Lord knows who we are now, where we are now. It's winter. It is actually winter. It is, and that was the end of Storm of Swords. It's going to get even more wintry for us from here as we cross over to the, the land of of winter yeah. and soon maybe land of always winter as we go to the heart of it eventually but not yet quite the winds of winter definitely not quite yet and thank you so much for joining us i know we took up a big portion of your time today but i was so happy to get your thoughts on bran i've always appreciated listening yeah. to you over at the old hypes watch episodes and clash of queens of course so thank you for taking time to come hang out with us we appreciate it well, thank you so much for having me yeah, I was going to say, where can people find you? But now you've kind of like, no one, you don't want to be found. I can't. She took her name out. She erased her name from history. She's like Blood Raven. Or are you like the children of the forest? Interesting, interesting. Right. She lives beneath uh, yeah, the night. Yeah, I live board. beneath, exactly. I mean, not Chloe. I live beneath the land. I'm everywhere. <laughs> I'm beneath your, yeah. I'm beneath your feet right now. Damn blood oh raven oh, shit wow she could be beneath your feet actually she, she's in the apartment below you never know <laughs> well we will link maybe uh maybe i'll link to to the brand discussions from hypes watch for good time's sake for you but we hope to have you back 
when Winds of Winter is published, we will for sure bring you back for a Sam. For sure. Mm-hmm. There are definitely going to be Sam chapters. Mm-hmm. Well, if you all want to keep up with, with us or with future episodes, as we've said, we have quite a few projects going on. You can find us on social media at twitter.com slash girlsgonecanon, that's C-A-N-O-N, or perhaps you have thoughts that you would like us to ponder. You can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. If you have the ability to rate, review, like, please do so. Please do so. Eliana likes to take a gander at them once in a while. You can find us pretty much everywhere over at Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, Audible, Stitcher, Acast, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, and many, many more. I'm proud of you. I almost lost it. (laughs) And somewhere you can definitely always find us is on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where patrons in the $5 tier and above get bonus episodes like A Song for Leah or The Mystery Night this February. Yeah, and patrons in the Thunder tier and above, that's 10 and up, will get lifetime access to our private Discord server, as well as access to events that happen monthly, like our brunch slash happy hour taking place February 19th, 1 to 3 p.m. ET this month in the voice chat, or our weekly His Dark Materials Series 3 episode discussions, rewatch that's going on from our patrons who are hosting it, and that's happening on Saturdays at 1 p.m. ET as well. Uh, That'll be going on probably till the front of March, so come having watched and come have fun. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thank you again to this week's other other host. But not that other. Anne. Oh my god. Or Anne, the secret fourth host. The secret, a secret fourth thing. The secret fourth thing. They're everywhere. A thousand Anne's in one. No. A thousand Anne's in one. <laughs> oh my god. What the fuck? <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.